This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. December 19th, 2016, and as part two of episode five of Psychology is Dead, I'm your host, Quentin Moody, and with me to give the second half of our top 50 wrestlers of 2016 list is Timothy. Timothy, how are you? Um, doing fantastic. Uh, a little hoarse. Obviously, people are probably hearing this, and they heard if they heard this week in wrestling, I'm sounding a little bit better. But these are kind of getting recorded back to back. Still reeling from the PWG weekend, but uh, I may sound like shit, but I feel fantastic, everybody. Which is, uh, I guess, probably not uncommon if you if you're used to listening to me on podcasts. <laughs> yeah. Um. I know you're really excited for that PWG show going into it because obviously it was a mystery vortex show. You knew a little bit of stuff going into it, but for the most part, a little bit of blind. But yeah, I'm hurt. like I get, I know you really enjoyed the show. Oh no, yeah, I loved it. I had such a good time, and on this week in wrestling, I did talk all about it and and uh, kind of went in on how I felt about the show overall. So. Um, you can go check that out and listen to my little review of it. And as we get into it, I will, uh, I'll put the blame on some people for why I sound like this. <laughs> yeah. And, um, it's fitting because I'm looking at my list right now and I have whew, a good amount of people that were on that mystery vortex show in my top 25. So, um, I guess that's kind of fitting that we um, mentioned that PWG show you went to. So want to get right into it? Yeah, let's do it. Let's jump in. All right, so we're going to keep the same order that we did last time. I'll do my 25. Timothy will do his 25 and 24, and, you know, we'll do all that. So, my number 25 is Walter, or Big Daddy Walter, Big Van Walter, but he goes by Walter now. So, yeah, uh, Walter is a guy who I have a little bit higher on the list here. So I think <laughs> we'll just say before the show, you said you, you're pretty sure you're going to come out with someone who uh, I have. And you you were spot on. I got him a little bit higher. Okay, so you're 25 and 24? My 25 is Speedball Mike Bailey. Wow, okay. I don't have Speedball. See, and I thought that there was a chance that you'd have him. But then I was also not sure because I know... While you probably watch more Japan than I do currently, um, I don't know that you're paying attention to where he's at in Japan, which tends to be DDT, DNA, and the undercards more. Oh, yeah. So I wasn't uh, sure if you were yeah, seeing I've, all that. I've seen most of his DDT stuff. The problem with for me is that I've seen pretty much none of his um, work in Canada, which was a big part okay. of it. So I've seen his DDT stuff his um, work in WXW, Rev Pro, and I've loved all of it, but because I was missing that um, work in his, you know, pretty much home country, it was hard for me to put him on. But go ahead and talk about Speedball. Yeah, and he's a guy, like, I think that you could blame, or I could blame him because he had one of my least favorite matches of the year with Marty Scroll that I talked about. Um, I actually reviewed it for Wrestling With Words, and I uh, just kind of didn't like it in RPW, but he also had one of my favorite matches of the year against uh, Matt Riddle in Beyond. So those are two kind of maybe a little bit more under the radar depending on what your your kind of opinions are of wrestling, what you're watching. I think people are missing those matches. Um, 
but like it kind of showed the gambit of his styles and where I think his strengths and weaknesses are, which obviously his biggest strength is his selling, his underdog fire, and uh, and yeah, being kind of being the the baby face who doesn't cut any promos, unfortunately, because when he talks, he has. There's, I don't know if it's just because of the Quebecois accent or if it's just his personality a little bit, but he comes across to me a little bit too kind of cocky and a little bit too sure of himself in his promos and not in a not as sure of himself in a good way, but in a way where, yeah, it feels um, it doesn't feel like like it should for a humble babyface kind of character that he plays as the as essentially the Karate Kid, which I always found a bit reductive when I would hear people describe. Speedball Mike Bailey's character as he's the real life uh, Daniel son from the Karate Kid because I just felt like uh, that character just was kind of not what Speedball is. I mean, Speedball I guess would be Daniel son uh, a couple years after the Karate Kid movies. He's yeah. fully formed as a as a, a karate master himself. He's, I mean, he's a Taekwondo black belt. Um, just had some phenomenal work this year. Obviously, not being able to work in America has um, affected his. I guess just his perception of how how big he is, but he really cobbled together a patchwork of working in Germany, having some great matches. Um, I remember the match with Kim Ray that was fantastic. He was in um, Ambition in a quick shoot fight style match with um, Axel Dieter Jr. that really stood out um, on the Ambition tournament because because of his style being the Taekwondo backing, so he spent less time on the mat than a lot of other guys. He's not as versed in the grappling, so to see a shoot fight style worker um, using a you know a different style of shoot was nice in there and then as you said in Canada um, particularly in C4 um, fantastic three way match with Joey Janela and Two Cold Scorpio who's uh, another guy who could have made the list this year Two Cold Scorpio has actually had a, a kind of sneaky good 2016 um, just kind of doesn't have the output there hasn't had a lot of matches but mm-hmm. yeah Bailey's just you know great matches with John Gresham also in C4 um, and then eventually he made his way into DDT as I talked about DNA um, and just kind of as Higuchi has been seen as the ace of DNA in some ways uh, Mike Bailey could be seen as a, another ace of DDT even making it to the finals of the DNA Grand Prix against Higuchi this year um, playing this great underdog babyface against Damnation as him and uh, Takashita won the tag belts just recently at Osaka Octopus and just a fantastic match and we talked about Endo and uh, yeah uh, Tetsuya Endo and Mike Bailey's chemistry with each other is so just phenomenal that it's it's been a lot of fun seeing those two. Uh, meanwhile, you switch over to to Smash Wrestling, and he had a really great match with uh with I believe with Mike Haskins or Mark Haskins. Um, yeah, that I remember did. watching. Yeah, that, that was one amazing. One. Yeah, that was on during the Progress of Smash shows. Yeah, and that was just a really great match. Um, so yeah, I just say that. He's a guy that's going to be under your radar somewhat if you're not checking out the kind of under-the-radar indies from around the world. If you're paying more attention to just America, you're not going to notice him. But he's sneakily like one of the best baby faces. I think his his biggest issue, and he has found a way to make it work in DDT where a lot of the guys are around the same size as him. But it seemed that for a long time there, it was really tough for him to have a good match with a guy his own size where he didn't work um, that underdog babyface formula. But he has started to kind of pick that up and put it together um but his underdog performances are still where he number one shines but you know having nice 
kind of interactions with Haskins where they're both using their uh, their you know mixed martial arts. So they're they're both their martial arts backgrounds against each other. Stuff with Gresham. I'm a match that technically doesn't fall into the 2016 calendar, but uh, from the 2015 Bola against Tommy End was probably my favorite match of that tournament. So I'd say you know go check that out because. It just kind of shows off that side of him, which is mixing it up with other guys who have shoot backgrounds and just showing off. Because Taekwondo is a style that you don't see integrated as much into wrestling, but in some ways is picture perfect for wrestling in that it's a flashy kick-based martial art that doesn't necessarily have the most practical use. It's not going to produce the most damaging kicks, but it does produce some of the most breathtaking and amazing looking strikes. So it's like, it's definitely suited him well in the professional wrestling uh, forum. So yeah, that's uh, Mike Bailey. I'm going to mention some stuff you didn't mention, I guess when you were talking about it, because I like Mike Bailey a lot and he's done some great stuff. You know, for instance, um, I'm I'm pretty sure you remember this, but the match he had with um Will Ospreay and um RPW. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I'm pretty sure you remember like you remember this too, being a PWG guy. But the match he had with Evil Uno at Bowie. Oh yeah, he single handedly made Evil Uno seem like a player, and then from there, Evil Uno went on to have a match with uh, Chris Hero, and because of the equity that he had built up with uh, Speedball, people believed in Evil Uno against Hero, which is a guy that I don't think anyone would have been taken seriously in that at that time you know in pwg so yeah. you know his selling and his bumping for him was fantastic there yeah and then um you mentioned bailey you know getting better at working guys that were around his size i thought he had a really good match with sammy callahan um in ccw at their 17th anniversary show um do you remember the guerrilla warfare match it was hero bailey and world's cutest tag team versus mount rushmore 2.0 yeah and some people were saying that was you know match of the match of the night and and uh you know one of the best matches of pwg this year and he was definitely a very important part of that match yeah so and then um we didn't really mention his um match uh, his matches on the wxw world tag leagues but uh he had a really great match with bad bones john Klinger on night one and then on night two having a really strong match with jaron simmons so it just seems like everywhere he pops up, Mike Bailey is doing something that's almost stealing the show. And it sucks that he didn't, um, I guess, get to capitalize on the momentum that he was building in, in the United States. Because he was poised to have an even bigger 2016 and 2015. So, you know, hopefully Bailey will get his border stuff worked out. But he's still a great wrestler nonetheless. So who are your 24? My 24 is a guy who I just brought up, and that was Tommy End. And me and you were talking about him before. Um, he was a tough one because I felt a little iffy about um, even getting him on the list due to the the kind of WWE ban. But when I been, went back and looked at it, it was kind of like he didn't really leave the Indies until late in 2016. I mean, he was still pretty solidly he didn't leave working. The, he didn't leave the Indies until um, September. And even had a couple shots where he came back for those evolves um, after September. So realistically, I mean, the guy had a pretty solid uh, resume for 2016 year. Um, and he's just – he's a guy who I just – I love everything about his style. The kickboxing background, the Muay Thai background, his look um, – Everything. Every one of his matches, he he delivers something that looks believable and real. This super stiff-looking strikes and switching back and forth from tagging with Chris Hero and tagging with uh, Michael Dante this year. Very impressive to me. Um, 
you know, the Heroes Eventually Die team going super deep in the Evolve Tag Tournament, producing matches that, you know, some vaunted opinions in wrestling have given five stars to some of their matches, four-star-plus range matches as a tag team, um, where he's playing the underling, the senpai to the to the kohai of Chris Hero there, and... Uh, then he turns around and does the same, does the inverse story with uh, Michael Dante, and even makes it. You know, it's the they're both larger than him, but in one situation he's the master, and in Dante's his pupil, and he completely can tell that story as well. So watching a guy who can kind of take things, learn things, go back and forth in different tag matches, totally different settings, then meanwhile have phenomenal singles matches. I thought. His match with uh, James Davis setting up more of the feud with the the Sumerian Death Squad versus uh, versus the London Riots, I thought was phenomenal, and he made James Davis look great. Who James Davis is, you know, a good worker for sure, but never had a lot of great singles matches, I would say, and he did there. Um, turn around and he's got the matches with TJP where he's working a little bit more mat based with TJP but also working the flashy kicks and all that in there as well um, had my match of the weekend for Bola weekend which was him versus Zack Sabre Jr. I thought both guys just completely knocked it out of the park both hitting it on all cylinders and probably the best performance I've seen from both guys and that you know Zack Sabre Jr. obviously one of the best in the world but Tommy End on that night was all his equal if not his better so that was really really impressive just to see how he was there for every moment of it. Um, going through the Super Strong Style 16, a tournament where he easily could have been overshadowed by Chris Hero, uh, by Mandrews, by Mark Haskins, by all the other stories. He goes all the way through and ends up winning the thing, and I feel like really made sure to kind of soak up and get the rub off of all those other guys that happened to be in the tournament. By the end of it, he looked like the baddest badass of the whole group, um, and he goes on the warpath from there. So, um, And then, meanwhile, there's also stuff in ICW. I will say I did not watch a lot of it, but the stuff that I did see with Legion um, seemed like a lot of great storyline stuff, which is what ICW is good about. Um, working with this, you know, this group of three guys who are coming in and um, feuding and, and feuding with the company, and then with other members of like kind of turning face midway through and feuding with um, just another group of heels there, and just kind of being dark and twisted and, and playing off of his own character there. Um, and then yeah, then can kind of. You know, the match with Trent Seven in uh, Fight Club Pro, where it's kind of more, again, toned back, a little bit more um, subtle and not as flashy, but still great. Um, and then the match with Thatcher in Evolve that was just fantastic and I think gets underrepresented for just how good it was. I think a lot of people have talked about it, but I think it was one of... Uh, one of Thatcher's best matches, and then also the match with Matt Riddle at um, Evolve 67 that I think was um, just a really phenomenal match where he used every bit of Matt Riddle's skills and every bit of his skills to kind of put together this hybrid that stands out as one of uh, Matt Riddle's most unique matches of the year. So um, just a guy who I think definitely gets overlooked as being kind of all style, maybe no substance, um, especially because he uses a lot of kicking and all that, but I think that he's he brings a uniqueness to his his striking game that no one else kind of can compare to. Yeah, I'll definitely say, even though I didn't have Tommy, that he does have a uniqueness factor, that he has a special aura. So if you're into that, then I could see him being on your list. <clears throat> the reason why Tommy didn't make my list is because I felt like too many times I was let down by Tommy when he was put in, like, I guess, high-profile settings. I didn't like the... Um, Fuck Sumerian Death Squad um, versus London Riot feud at all. The TLC match they had, I thought, was 
pretty bad. I wasn't a fan of Tommy's path to winning the Strong Style 16 other than the Chris Hero match, where I thought Chris Hero did a really good job shining Tommy up. But, you know, it's Chris mm-hmm. Hero, and he's lo- known Tommy for a really long time. Chris Hero's going to make sure Tommy gets over. But I wasn't really a fan of that. And I didn't really like the Marty Scroll matches. So, I don't know, it's three separate occasions in a company that was pushing Tommy pretty hard where I felt let down by him. So it would have been hard for me to make for him to make my list. But I've enjoyed him in a lot of places. Like you mentioned that Zack Sabre Jr. match. I enjoy that a lot. I enjoy, I've enjoyed the Heroes Eventually Die tag team. Uh, it just wasn't enough for Tommy to make my list. Um, so my 24, I'm pretty sure you have this guy higher too, but Zach Gibson. Uh, yeah, I do have Meyer. All right, so my 23 is Willow Spray. Uh, no, he just, he was a late cut, but he just kind of squeaked out of my list. So let's hear about Osprey. See, that's interesting, because I feel, because that's like, I know you like Osprey, so I was surprised that you didn't have him. He was definitely a guy I was super high on, but again, like I said, he's 52 here. He was just underneath Sammy Gravara in not making my list. So, right. like I said, he just squeaked out of the list. All right. When... I'll flat out say that compared to where he was at the beginning of the year to where he is in December 2016, that he's cooled off a lot. Part of that is due to him being in Japan so much and him pretty much being an undercard guy. But I think it'd be pretty silly to dismiss that what he did in 2016. I mean, like literally from January... He was putting on matches that people were giving match of the year praise at high stakes with Marty Scurll at Progress Chapter. Uh, what was that? What was that Progress Chapter? Which 25. one? Yeah, 25 against Marty Scurll. And then the Mania Weekend, obviously, where he's facing Zack Sabre Jr., another match that got match of the year praise. He's in that insane Mercury Rising six-man tag the Wrestle uh, the WrestleCon match with Skrull, and he pretty much was the star of that weekend. Then he goes over to New Japan, and he debuts an invasion attack against Kushida, and then he has a really great Best of Super Juniors run. I think the thing with Osprey is that he might have flamed out a little too early, because I think if Will Osprey maybe isn't in Japan so much, maybe doesn't sign that New Japan contract... He would be much higher on my list and maybe would have even made your list. But I feel like because if you're not watching these New Japan undercards, you're just not watching him. But I think because Will Ospreay did create such a buzz for himself that the guy could have literally signed anywhere he wanted to. That's not me saying it. It's just a fact of if you're, paying, if you're reading anything about the news or anything like that, Will Ospreay had deals from everywhere. He could have went anywhere he wanted. But he went to New Japan, and that kind of limited his visibility. So, but I think in the in the buzz he garnered, even talking, we didn't even mention that Ricochet match from Best of the Super Juniors, which turned the entire wrestling world on his head. So, I think he's had a really good match output. Maybe not as strong as I would think for someone who has such a strong start to the year. But the flaming out 
is why he's lower than I would think. Like, if you asked me in April of this year where Will Ospreay would be on my rest of the year list, he'd be in my top five. But he's just, you know, went down that far. Yeah, you're, he's definitely a guy who suffers from that. And for me, part of it probably, too, is that it's what have you done for me lately yeah. is his biggest suffer. Is that, yeah, like, the matches with Scroll early in the year, um, I think that they... Well, they hit a peak, and then they started to kind of fall down. Um, like, to me, I think the WrestleCon match was probably their weakest match, and I think it was one of their last ones. Um, but meanwhile, the, the the number one contender match in RPW was just phenomenal and kind of competed with that Sabre and uh, AJ Styles match that was the main event on that show for the match of the night, which was saying something because I thought that match was phenomenal as well. So... Yeah, he's just a guy who had such a slump towards the end of the year that it was, when you're putting the list together, to me, I probably wasn't even thinking about how good he was in the beginning. Um, you know, I stopped and thought about that match with Shane Strickland that I think was one of his best kind of depth of character performances of all year. Yeah. Um, but then taking time off from there, it was kind of like, geez, you know, where are you at? And then his bola performances, while I think that a lot of people um, kind of were really taken aback and thought that he was doing great. Um, I did not really get behind it that much. So um, I thought he was solid and he was good, but I didn't, I mean, the match with Sabre I thought was maybe one of their better matches, but I couldn't see it as 100% their best match. Uh, the match with Phoenix I felt was phenomenal, kind of high-tech, state-of-the-art, high-flying, but on a, on a weekend with so many other insane spot-fest matches, it ended up kind of not standing out. So um, he's just a guy who I think he suffers from a similar thing that the Young Bucks do, which is that they kind of popularized a style that now a lot of other people are coming in and able to do better. Yeah, and I forgot to mention with Osprey that you mentioned that Shane Strickland match, but essentially the story with Osprey this year in Progress, which is the company I associate him with the most, is that in 2016 he got no wins. Literally winless throughout the entire calendar year for Progress. And they started playing it up even more once he came back from um, the Best of the Super Juniors. Do you, would you recall who his first match was when he came back? I'm trying to think. Uh, when he first came back from... Oh, from Best of the Super Juniors, and he went into progress. Yeah. Oh, geez, no, I, I don't know off the top of my head, honestly. Um, yeah, but, um, I almost think it would have been that Thunder Bastard that wait, he was wait, in. Hold on. No, that wasn't it. It was Haskins? I think it was Haskins. Okay. Yeah, so starting with the Haskins match and the Sabre match, the Strickland match, the Matt Riddle match, the Shane, I mean, the um, Adam Cole match. It was a string of really great matches, but Will Ospreay kept losing them. And I think this is an underlying thing, because I think people undersell Ospreay as a character. And he showed some really great character work in progress on this losing streak, where gradually the commentary is playing up that uh, he went to Japan, he did well, he won the best at Super Juniors, he's the first, you know, Brit to do it. Maybe his head got a little big, maybe he's getting kind of arrogant. So, when Will is losing, you see him kind of start to break. And it's not the same confident guy that he used to be. They're not the same valiant baby face. He's now kind of looking for cheap ways and cheap shots to make sure he gets the victory. You mentioned the Shane Strickland match, and I love that match because Will Ospreay fakes an injury. But knowing Will Ospreay, you don't know how fake it is because it's gone around our bubble so much that Will is battling injuries. He's, heard, he's had his shoulder taped up for most of the year. 
all of that. So when Willow Spray is, is out there grabbing his shoulder and Jim Smallman is there and the referee's checking up on him, and then he gets back in the ring and tries to take advantage and kick Shane Strickland, you know, you buy that, but Willis so desperate that it comes across as almost like, what are you doing, man? Like, you've done so great, and now you can't even get it done. You have to cheat. And I'm hoping that in 2017, we get the full heel turn. But, yeah, I think the progress run is something that people should check out just for if you want more death out of Will as a character. Yeah, and I can't argue with that. And I think that he does have some some real potential as a heel. And I just think it'll be really interesting to see where he goes with that because he may be a better character worker than he gets credit for. Yeah, for sure. Um, So I have a question. I know you didn't have him, but... Would 2015 Will Ospreay have made your list for top 50 wrestlers of 2016? For, yes. Yeah. You mean if the Will Ospreay had the same 2015 that he had, but in 2016? Yeah. Yeah, I think he would have, honestly. But that's also because there was less taking time off. You know what I mean? Right. There was more output the entire year. There was some just insane matches there. The 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 bloom wasn't off the rose yet. He hadn't really started mixing in a lot of this stuff that... That really took away from his kind of... He had a baby... He had a saccharine kind of blowjob babyface sheen to him in 2015 that disappeared in 2016 with a lot of the pip-pip cheerio motherfucker and playing up the stuff about Vader and all that. So, you know what I mean? He lost that innocence. Yeah, so I definitely think that he would have, honestly. All right. So, um, who's your 23? My 23 is Ray Rowe, and I'm kind of interested to see if you even have him. No, 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 I don't have Ray Rowe. Okay, so Ray Rowe is a guy who I could definitely see easily not having him on your list because you just see him as, you know, one of the guys in War Machine. Which, you know, early in the year, they kind of bungled their tag title win and they kind of wasted their booking there that they had made him look so strong for so long. Boom, you know, I don't know. Who am I to say? I don't know what's going on backstage, but it seemed like really quickly uh, Christopher Daniels is given a little bit more control when it comes to booking matches. And then look at that. The addiction have the tag titles again. I'm not saying anything, but it was just kind of odd that that happened when it did. Um from there, you know, the War Machine go on a little bit of a tour. They hit Japan. They have a, a phenomenal match with the Killer Elite Squad and Noah that I definitely recommend going and checking out. Um, they go into the UK. A lot of great matches with different Hossie teams. I think that they really delivered in their feud with the London Riots, which was a kind of coming off the heels of the London Riots versus the um, Sumerian Death Squad feud that, as you said, I think that the strongest match of the feud between the London Riots and Sumerian Death Squad was actually the Tommy N versus James Davis singles match. Um, as you said, because that you know the tables, ladder, chairs match really disappointed, um, and a lot of the other kind of tag matches I don't think were great, and they had a lot of wonky finishes and stuff. But uh, meanwhile, the War Machine comes in and they just tear the house down. And that's the thing about the War Machine is that as a tag team, the War Machine have phenomenal matches with the Hit Squad, um, with all of the teams in Japan as they went through the tag league. Mm-hmm. Everyone on ROH, Keith Lee, Shane Taylor, they're always on point. They always deliver essentially the same match that I would say gets you to about three and a half to three quarter star almost every time. Just a lot of wild bombs, a great, you know, instant story with that they're this 
unstoppable wrecking crew. But then what makes Ray Rose case to be on the list is his singles kind of bona fides as he goes around. Um, anywhere he works, he feels like a, a credible top level performer, a guy who can be the title challenger in a different, you know, in a different company. He's always been huge in AIW. He had phenomenal matches throughout the entire J lit. Um, and yeah, he can go up to AIW Challenge for the title. And then meanwhile, back in Texas, he can be the man. He can be the champ. He can be the guy that you book the whole company around. And he's always believable, putting down whoever is coming up to him. Heel, baby face, he works it all. Um, and then I would say the his crown jewel match of the year is definitely the Ray Rowe versus Sammy Gravara match that me and you have talked about. I think a legit match of the year contender where he really took this young kid and made him into a star. Um, and that was a lot of it based on Ray Rose's work and his ability as a ring general and a ring kind of yeah as a ring general and as a veteran there. Um, so he's just a guy who I think if you're on a if you go to a show you may not be super excited to see Ray Rose, but I guarantee you that when you see Ray Rose's match, it's going to be in the top minimum. It's going to be the top third. It's going to be the third best match on the card every time. And it's like it's without question, it's either going to be like the third best at the worst, and it's going to probably be the best match on the show because the guy delivers every time in spades it's like he is a fucking machine it's hits those big spots every time doesn't matter who it's on he can throw around the big man he can throw around the little man he can sell he can work big he can work small i mean the guy just can do everything so i think he's a really underappreciated phenomenal worker who can fill out any part of the card but i think really shines at the top of the card yeah um main reason is because i haven't watched barely any ring of honor this year so, being that War Machine and Raw in particular are mainly Ring of Honor guys, it would have been hard for me to make a case for them, similar to why uh, certain people didn't make my list. But you're spot on with everything you said. One thing about Ray Rowe that he doesn't get enough credit about, and something I think Silas Young doesn't get enough credit about too, is that he works to a spot on the card really well. And like Silas, if you put him in a main event picture, Silas can deliver and so can Ray Rowe. The thing that separates him from Silas is that Ray Rowe has even more of a badass aura. Um, yeah, you and I think that's... Go ahead. I, I, oh, I was going to say, I think that's a good point because I think Silas can main event in places where the crowd knows him, but I think that Ray Rowe can main event anywhere. And yeah. that's kind of the difference there between them. Yeah, I honestly think that, you know, even though he's a tag team guy, that if you set up Ray Rowe as a possible challenger for Kyle, Kyle O'Reilly on a random ROH show that will be on VOD, not like an iPay-Per-View or something, that it would work because Ray Rowe has his look and has some credibility to him that would lead to a compelling match. And then you mentioned his work outside the Ring of Honor. That Sammy Guevara match is fantastic. I love it so much. And he just beats the ever-living shit out of this 22, 23-year-old kid. And it's Ray Rowe just being a complete badass. He got brought in to teach this kid a lesson and he certainly does it. He just has this kind of Uniqueness, almost similar to Tommy End, where he has the tattoos, the big beard, and all that. And he's not just all look. When he gets when he gets in the ring and he hits somebody, you're like, oh man, you don't want to fuck with this guy at all. So yeah, I totally get Ray Rowe. It's just I haven't paid attention to Ring of Honor, so I can't put I couldn't have put it on couldn't have put him on the list. Yeah, no, and again, I can't blame you completely for that because it's ROH has not been the best promotion this year, but. If you have been paying attention to it, 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 it can be rewarding, especially on the undercard. Yeah. So, um, who's your 22? Um, my 22 is Jeff Cobb. 
And I think you have him, but I'm not sure. No, I didn't have Jeff Cobb. Oh, I really thought you did for some reason. Okay. No. Well, Jeff Cobb is a guy who I've just I've been watching for quite a while. Being that I'm, you know, he's a, he's a California guy, even if he's NorCal more. Um, he may, he's been making trips down here forever, and I just I love the premier wrestling up north and um, Fighting Spirit Pro and and a lot of the other companies that he's worked at APW throughout the years. Um, but this year he really got his chance to stand out, and a lot of it came from Lucha Underground. Um, which is a big part of what got him to this this high on my list is just that um, going from really playing two totally different characters, uh, Jeff Cobb sells quite a bit for a big man and does a really great job of getting sympathy even as a big man. Um, one of the most per- per- impressive performances he's had this year was against Zack Sabre Jr. where he was able to flip the crowd who was pretty solidly behind Zack Sabre Jr. He's the home guy in England and uh, through you know Zach's work and his work by the end of it they're completely cheering Cobb and they're turned on uh, on Saber and that was really impressive then meanwhile you have him in Lucha Underground where he plays this unbeatable badass monster who just seems like a caged animal um, just viscerally attacking people with just nasty eye gouging and ripping at the flesh but he really only gets to those points when he's pushed otherwise he's just this unstoppable wrecking machine throwing people around it's it's actually kind of amazing how much of a nuanced character he is playing this Matanza playing Matanza in Lucha Underground because I don't think people even even notice it um he'll have a match with say uh ricochet you know prince puma and it's just him throwing puma around but then when he turns around and he wrestles the mac or willie mac um who has some size on him when willie mac is able to kind of get the power game and take over that's when he's you know gouging at the eyes and that's when he's taking some cheap shots and that's when he's backed into a corner so it's, it's really interesting to see that um obviously phenomenally gifted talent um as i said really impressive beyond his years student of the game obviously uh, been a huge fan of wrestling and you know of course you get some points points when uh when you wear a papa hale shirt and you get even bigger points when you're such a nice guy to take the time to talk to every fan that you see wearing a papa hale shirt and make such a big deal about it so you know that kind of flattery will get you everywhere um then meanwhile yeah as i said the stuff in premiere the stuff with tyler bateman who i think is an underappreciated socal worker um who really reminds me of an early chris hero though you know so people hear that though and don't take it like i'm saying he's as good as chris hero what i'm saying is he reminds me of young iwa chris hero um he's kind of like taller and works that super indie style meanwhile uh when Cobb takes him on in premiere he kind of settles him down a little bit more and they work a really meaty somewhat more mat based match with some big throws and big bombs throughout it um which is you know fantastic stuff there again and uh goes to just show that Cobb is able to when he's in control of the match a little bit more he's able to kind of give you something interesting and, and a different style um he broke out I think he was you know really good in the Jim Lynham tournament. It was kind of tough to compare his match with, um, with Zack Sabre Jr. from RPW to his match in AAW. Didn't have that same kind of spark, but a big part of that was the crowd dynamic and the crowd turning. Um, had a really good match with, with Drew Gulak, where unfortunately I think he was you know kind of put on the back burner as Gulak worked his bully style on top of him. But when he gets the chance to go, I think he's a guy who just can have amazing matches. Again, had one of... Uh, had a really, really phenomenal match with Riddle in Evolve, um, and then turned around and had a totally different match the next night with Fred Yehi in Evolve. Um, so I just think he's a guy whose future is even brighter, but had a really great 2016 kind of breaking out. Yeah, he definitely had a great 2016 as far as being a breakout star goes. Even though I didn't have Cobb, I enjoyed him quite a bit. I think 
and I said this on I, did, I said this before when I did the Supreme Lucha on um, Aztec Warfare 2 but I thought the Matanza debut was maybe the best debut I've ever seen in professional wrestling where he just annihilated every person in that match it was incredible you know what he did to Rey Mysterio what he did to Phoenix what he did to Willie Mack what he did to everyone in that match it was just just awe-inspiring so that's one of the more memorable things he's done this year I'm surprised you didn't mention more of his California work you mentioned the premiere stuff with um, Bateman but you didn't mention his match in SPW with Adam Thornstow oh yeah I mean I I kind of there are some smaller and he's like the a there was a, a couple good APW matches as well and that Thornstow match that really stands out but honestly I was I'm trying to talk in a more broad sense I guess for people who um for the stuff that more people might have seen, I guess. But, yeah, uh, yeah, just, yeah, that Bateman match was just so good. Yeah, I'm just saying, like, there's other stuff that probably deserves a shout because he's done great work. You, didn't, you know, being a PWG guy, you probably didn't want to make it seem like all, um, all his great stuff was in PWG, but when he came to PWG and had that match with Chris Hero and he tossed around Chris Hero, and I remember looking at people in the crowd and just mouths are agape at him doing that German suplex to Chris Hero in that match with Trevor Lee that was pretty damn wild too so yeah Jeff Cobb is a guy that's done a lot this year I haven't been in love with a lot of his matches so that's why he didn't make my list but he's been responsible for some really cool moments in 2016 so yeah that's about it there um my 22 I'm surprised if you I'm surprised you haven't said this guy yet maybe you have him higher but 22 is Mustafa Ali you know, he didn't make my list, and um, it's just because, like, outside of freelance, I think he was disappointing to me this year, mm-hmm. but he was so good in freelance yeah. that I can definitely see the case for having him on your list, but I I had to really, <laughs> I'm just going to kind of, it's not a spoiler, but I'm just going to say, I had a choice to make when it really came into the high end of my list, and uh, to be able to kind of justify that choice for myself I had to kind of rigorously stick to the principles that I set up and so not being able to deliver outside of one promotion was an issue, was a sticking point for me Okay, that's fair Um, The reason why, even though that he's only been prevalent in one promotion is that I think his work in one promotion was so good that that it was the reason why he got signed to WWE you know, like, he was so good in freelance. His matches were getting uploaded. He was the push guy. He was the star in freelance to such a large degree that it was the reason why he got signed. It wasn't his work anywhere else. It wasn't his work in any other companies, even though he was working, like, golly, Lucha Libre or Funky Monkey or AEW to some extent. It was what he did in freelance. And what he did in freelance was so important because he became the lead babyface one of the most important figures in the history of this company, and he had only debuted, you know, just recently in that company. So what he accomplished in such a short span of time was tremendously impressive. Starting the year off against Isaiah Velasquez in his first title challenge, he loses, but he makes such an impact. The next month, he's facing Nick Brubaker in a tremendous... No, it wasn't Brubaker he faced next month. The next month, he faced uh, Ethan Page. And it's one of the best Ethan Page matches I've ever seen. He faced Nick Brubaker. He was great in a multi-man match to get a number one contendership. 
Then he finally beats Isaiah Velasquez in one of the most emotional and dramatic title changes in wrestling this year. The thing that made him go further up my list than just having the feud with Isaiah in the title win was the stuff he did when he won the title. And the main one is the match versus GPA from the big Triple and Wicker Park show. And I'm not going to say exactly where it is, but I'll say that when myself, Trask, and Brock do our Top 100 matches for 2016 show, it's going to do very well for me. And that's a match that's driven on storytelling and Mustafa Ali playing a different role. He had always been a babyface and freelance, but in this match, he's getting more frustrated, getting more cocky, kind of being dismissive of GPA, who hasn't accomplished much in this company. And then once Mustafa Ali realizes that he's being taken to the limit, he turns it up a notch, gets real nasty in how he attacks him, gets real nasty in kicking him, his personality gets even more aggressive. Just a really tremendous match with a ton of storytelling. And the match with Zima Ion was a bit of a sprint, but still great. The Leo Rush match from Walk Among Us, another great match. I think his stuff in AEW I probably like more than you. But as far as, I think I like the, um, the st- some of the stuff he did. The Ray Horace match, he got hurt, so he got cut short. I really liked the Mustafa Ali-Chris Hero match. I really liked the Mustafa Ali-Phoenix match purely because it's different. It's a different character than what we're getting from Mustafa Ali in Freelance. And then the Mustafa Ali-Zack Sabre Jr. match where I thought it was like a similar structure to the Zack Sabre Jr. versus Cedric Alexander matches. And I, and I love those matches, so anything, you know, taking, taking traits of that is a plus for me. Then he had the Cruiserweight Classic match, and even though it was five minutes, and even though he was gone in the first round, he left such an impact on that company that they signed him. It speaks to how talented this guy is, that he can go out there for just a five-minute match, and he he winds up leaving with a WWE contract. So, I think the guy is tremendously talented, and the fact that he had such a year, when he's been around for a while, he's had some setbacks, had some issues maybe with his personality that rubbed people the wrong way. But Freelance gave him a shot. He took the ball and ran with it. And now he's signed to the biggest company in wrestling. So, you know, it was a really great year for him. And even if it's limited, it was something that I felt like needed to be acknowledged. Yeah, no, I can't argue with that. And um, he's definitely uh, an important story for the just how kind of um, the, I guess he's a explanation, a microchasm version of the story of 2016, which has really been about the niche wrestling becoming the mainstream. Yeah. And uh, freelance couldn't have been more niche than it was. And through the support of the fans and you know some some kind of very I guess evangelistic people who picked it up and talked about it and getting a little bit of exposure here and there it became one of the indie darlings of the year and so much so that it did get a guy signed and I was kind of shocked that um Isaiah Velasquez didn't also get picked up somewhere else that was interesting because he seemed like an important cog in the freelance you know system this year that should have kind of stood out and had a similar thing happen so I can definitely see where where you know how he gets this place on your list it's just 
as I said, to me, he didn't stand out anywhere but freelance. Um, so you know that was the the kind of the death knell for him. Yeah, I can see that. Um, my number twenty one. You may have this guy higher, but my number twenty one is Kushida. Um. Yeah, I've got him higher. All right. So who's your twenty one? My twenty one is uh, Katsuyori Shibata. I don't have Shibata. That's kind of surprising to me, honestly. Um, I mean, the guy has just killed it. He always does. And what got him on the list this year, from other than just being a really always phenomenal wrestler, and kind of it sucks that the New Japan system, he doesn't, nobody gets a lot of big time singles matches, um, was that he did kind of have, this year was his chance to walk about and spread his legs, or stretch his legs a little bit and go to <laughs> some other promotions. Um, although he does spread his legs, I saw him rolling around on the mat and it's not the, the prettiest picture. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, early in the year, he wins the Never title and really kind of becomes the dominant force of that division, stabilizing it and kind of changing it to mean something new, even after Ishii had already kind of done the same. Um, he has this really great feud with the old timers who I think that, I think that really helped heat a lot of them up going into G1 this year. I think there was a lot of talk about the dads, the dads, oh, the dads are so great in G1 this year. And I felt like a lot of that came from this, this nice feud that they had with, uh, Shibata before the G1 that helped build them back up and, you know, put some equity in them as something other than just fodder and, oh, these guys are going to have shitty matches throughout the whole G1. I mean, the story of the year was Tenzan and everyone was making such a big deal about him where I don't know if Tenzan gets that fire behind him about being old and past his prime if he wasn't involved in that feud with Shibata early on and I think that gets overlooked. Um, meanwhile, maybe it was bungled a little bit having him drop the belt to, uh, to Nagata and then win it back, but to me, the matches were great. I mean, the booking we can argue with, but as a wrestler, he was always delivering phenomenal matches. Um, he shows up in ROH. I got to see him live against Silas Young. I think he had a great match with Silas Young, who I who I who I like a lot, and a lot of people were kind of shitting on it. Oh, why is he working Silas Young? I was excited for it because I know Silas Young is a very good worker. Um, they had a great match and really knocked it out of the park there. Then he turns around and starts working with Bobby Fish, Kyle O'Reilly. Um, they're wrestling against each other. They're teaming up with each other. They're just kind of telling this story. And he helps legitimize Kyle O'Reilly and, and Bobby Fish in both New Japan and ROH as being on his level. Um which I think was a big part of building towards both guys being looked at as more heavyweights in New Japan and also for Kyle O'Reilly getting the belt in ROH. Um, from there, he shows up in RPW, has a phenomenal match, two phenomenal matches with uh, Zack Sabre Jr. that I just loved to pieces. Both matches I thought were great and really showed different styles, different um, depths of game for both guys as uh, Zack Sabre Jr. showed off some of that strong style stuff that he picked up in Noah that he doesn't really get to show off as much anymore. So I thought it was really interesting seeing him kind of work a little bit stiffer with some strikes and trading basic grappling back and forth that looks a little bit more um, realistic and less of that kind of polished over-the-top world of sport parlor trick style, um, which I enjoyed quite a bit. Um, in the G1, he was in the for me he was in the top three or four. Um, I'd have to double check exactly, but for me he was you know one of the top three or four performers of the entire G1. Um, I don't think he had anything less than a good match the entire tour. And yeah, when it comes down to it, there's the argument that oh he's you know he's stuck in multi man tags all the time. He doesn't have a lot of great singles, but I think 
even in the multi-man matches, he brings something special with his his fire, his tenacity. The feud with Noah, I think, was legitimized by Shibata and how pissed off he is. He's the one who made the Noah feud seem special and important and exciting. Again, it's not his fault. The booking kind of fell apart on that one. Um, so yeah, I think that Shibata, he ends up on my list this year because we got to see him show off in other settings and really kind of show that he could make the same Shibata from New Japan work all over the world, um, which I thought was pretty impressive. I have no argument against that. The reason why I didn't have Shibata is it was just purely an oversight. Like, there's literally no reason why I didn't have Shibata. And in hindsight, I probably should have had him. But it was just really just an oversight. I love the guy. I think he's been, you know, a top three guy in New Japan this year. But, you know, it was just a complete oversight for me. So, that's about it there. But I agree with everything you said about the guy. I was I was glad that you mentioned the way that he legitim- legitimized um, the Noah feud because one of the most iconic moments of 2016 to me is that headbutt that Shibata does to Nakajima and when the blood trickles down Shibata's like forehead really slowly and there's just something about Shibata that's nasty and reckless and he just doesn't care he just wants to maim the other person in front of him and it's something that a lot of people try to replicate and come across as tough guys but no one translates that to their matches as well as Shibata I think yeah no and I agree with you <laughs> alright so who's your 20 uh, <laughs> I'm like I'm kind of um, not regretting but in some ways kind of regretting this one uh, my number 20 is Matt Riddle wow <laughs> wow okay. uh, are we going to be talking about him later yeah we'll talk about him later but wow that's surprising yeah okay alright um, my 20 is Mascara Dorada or now known as Grand Metalik uh, he's a guy that could have made my list if I mean if we could mix in some of the stuff from 2015 you know I think that he had some stuff I really liked in 2015 and some stuff that I really liked in 2016. But if you could combine those two things, you know, that stuff together, I think he could have a, a full year, but I just feel like 2016, he just didn't have enough that I really liked to make my list. Right. Um, Dorada, as far as Lucha guys had the best output in the ring this year, this guy was everywhere and he was having great matches every time you looked at him. From even the Fantastic Mania stuff where he's wrestling Bushi and they had a great match at the beginning of the year to when he gets back to CMLL and he's facing Mephisto, facing Barbaro Cavernario, facing uh, Negro Casas. The guy is just delivering every single week. And then he's a guy like Mystica, who didn't make my list, but a guy that I thought had a really great 2016, where anytime he's in a multi-man match, that guy steals the show. He's just one of those incredible wrestlers that when he gets into that next gear, hits his high spots, you just forget everything else. That guy just blows your mind with some incredible dive off the stage, some incredible hurricane run off the apron, something the guy always steals the show. Outside of just CMLL work where he had a great title run. And something about, well, before we move on from CMLL, I want to talk about the fact that a lot of people think he's one-dimensional just a high flyer, just at crazy spots. 
That's not true at all. This guy can really work a traditional lucha match style. Just because he gets to that third fall and it gets crazy with the dives and the hurricane ranas, that doesn't mean anything. Yes, he hits that next gear and it might get, you know, if you want to call it super indie-ish or whatever, whatever, like that's fine. But those first two falls, he's as great as anyone is working those first two falls and getting submission victories, doing a clever submission, doing a clever pin combination. He's great at that. The guy knows what he's doing. And I think there, it's exhibited when, in the Cruiserweight Classic, when he's facing Tajiri. There's no high flying in that match. It's just really straight, really smart mat work and really smart and really stiff striking. But Skyro Dorada can do that, and he has more, more versatility than people give him credit for. In Lucha Libre Elite, he had great stuff with guys like uh, Tigre Uno or Stream Tiger, with Caristico, with Volador, with Reyes Scorpion. The guy delivered there too, which is something like he didn't have to, even though Lucha Libre Elite is on TV, where that's where a lot of his high-end single stuff came from. He even um, had a match with Flamita in Carvalucha in May, which wasn't anything spectacular, but it's two of the best flyers in the world going out and having almost an exhibition, and it's hard not to have fun watching that. And now we get to his Grizzly Classic run, and he has the opening round match that steals the show in the first episode against Alejandro Saez. Then second round, he's facing Tajiri. Then after that, he faces Akira Tozawa. Then after that, he faces... Uh, who do you face? Zack Sabre Jr. And after that, he faces TJP. He had a tremendous run in the Cruiserweight Classic. That solidified this spot on my list because in Mexico, he had the best output. Well, then he even translated what he did very well to the U.S., no, he hasn't debuted yet as far as being part of the um, Cruiserweight division on Raw. He hasn't been on 205 Live. I don't know what's going on there. But he's a guy that as far as output goes, he's as great as anyone that, that's like in the top, top tier end of my list. The only thing that holds him back is that those guys have the character work to boost them up while Mascara Dorada just doesn't. But his output is just as great. Yeah, and he's another guy, again, like I said, suffers from my lack of enjoying Lucha <laughs> presentation in general. But um, I think that he's definitely a high-quality worker, and the stuff that I do see that's presented in a way that I like, I always really enjoy what he has. And he does have a little bit more depth to his match than I think people give him credit for, so you're definitely right on that regard. All right, so my number 19 is Pete Dunn. Oh, we'll talk about him later. All right, so who's your 19? My 19 is Tetsuya Naito. I have Naito higher. I figured. Uh, my 18 is Cedric Alexander. I don't have Cedric. Wow. What? I cannot believe it, Quentin. Look, Cedric, was, look, you have your guys that were like last cut. Cedric was one of those ones that was like, let me check exactly where I had him. Hold on. 54. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. Um, Cedric was like the best babyface in wrestling for a few months during this year. Um, and he goes to show kind of, as we're talking about Mustafa Ali, he, even though he was in ROH, he showed the, the breakout of the nichedom of wrestling because he made his hay. He made his rep on the Carolina Indies in the South, um, primarily. Um, and that's what kind of got him noticed and got him in WWE. 
Uh, sure, everyone knew he was underutilized in ROH, but everyone knew that for a long time. Shit, everyone knew that about uh, most guys in ROH, and they didn't all get signed by WWE, did they? Uh, you know what I mean? So it yeah. just kind of goes to show that what he did was he put together a resume of amazing performances. Meanwhile, yeah, he did have good matches in ROH. He starts out the year, as I, I'm looking at a list of his matches, he started out the year with a match that I almost forgot, but a TV match with John Gresham that made John Gresham seem like he needed to be pushed at the top level in ROH. Um, all because of just how well Cedric, you know, you know, sold for him, made him look great there. Um, throughout the year, yeah, like I said, he just puts together these phenomenal matches in CWF, in uh, Nova Pro, in PWF, the Chris Hero match, the Zack Sabre Jr. match, both matches that I just thought stood out as being amazing. Um, just some of the, like I said, some of the best babyface work that you're going to ever see. Um, his final match in ROH against Donovan Dijak, I think, was really interesting that everyone kind of knew what was going on there. And I think at the time, Cedric was still technically a heel in ROH, but in that match, it was like, fuck it. You know, they just had fun and they told this amazing story with just a quick match. Um, and just like it was weird to think like this great worker that you guys have kind of squandered and this is the final match you give him is just like a random undercard match against Dijak on a co-promoted New Japan show um, yeah so then from there he shows back up and evolve and just hits the ground running with a great match with a uh, with Johnny Gargano then the match with Tommaso Ciampa that I thought was so just really really good um, he has a match with a uh, Matt Riddle eventually in Evolve that's just another one that was like kind of testing Matt Riddle and ha- having him go against someone who wasn't kind of hand-picked um, as him. an opponent. He faces Yehi too. Yeah, Yehi, another one where he has a great match. So he just, he runs through Evolve really quickly and then shows up in the Cruiserweight Classic. Um, just, you know, obviously has this great, great match. Um during the Cruiserweight Classic with Ibushi that essentially gets him signed. Everyone's going crazy for it. Um, God, that was even his second round match. He had another match in the Cruiserweight Classic, and I'm blanking on it. What was his opening Cruiserweight Classic match? Oh, God. Did he face... Uh... God, who the fuck was it? It wasn't some big-name guy. No, you're right. It wasn't... Um... It wasn't Ari... It wasn't Ari Davari. Oh, it was Eichner, wasn't it? No, it wasn't Eichner. Um, Eichner faced Gallagher. Uh, they had him as Clement Petrion. Oh, Clement, Clement, Clement Potois, I think. Yeah, yeah, okay, now I remember that. And yeah, like that was whatever, but the, the story of the thing was the match with Ibushi that just showed that he was on the level of Ibushi. Big fucking deal. Um, from there, now he's, you know, obviously been muddling a little bit in... Uh, in the cruiserweight division, but they're, they obviously see something in him. And I think we all know that there's something there. He's got just instant like ability. He's just a fantastic baby face. So he's just a guy I couldn't overlook. I just think had so many great matches and just can work front with guys at the top, top level. Someone like Abushi, who I think is accepted as one of the great workers, Zack Sabre Jr., Chris Hero, but he can also work with younger guys, uh, Chet Sterling. Darius Lockhart. You know, James, yeah, exactly, and make them look just as good. So he's just all over the place, ring general, but he can also listen. Great baby face. I think he was a really underappreciated heel when he was heel in ROH. It was yeah. really impressive to me the way he worked as a heel. So just a guy who could do it all. Yeah, and I feel guilty about not having Cedric. Um, man, I don't know where to start with this guy because he's just so fucking talented, man. And it just something that will always stand out to me is the fact that in this cruiserweight division where people barely react to anything 
that it always feels like Cedric Alexander is the most over guy, no matter what he's doing. <clears throat> Cedric Alexander, for some reason, always seems to get a reaction. And I feel like that goes unnoticed, because the Cruiserweight division has been a bit of a flop. But Cedric seems to be a guy that, if they ever decide to flip the switch and push him, he could definitely be a viable guy in the mid-card somewhere. Um, you mentioned his tremendous work as a babyface. I thought he was really great in that first Zack Sabre Jr. match at PWX. That was one of the best babyface heel, you know, straight-up heel performances of the year for, for me. Um... I'm gonna. I think I'm even higher on this heel work than you, honestly, because that match with Darius Lockhart was tremendous stuff. That was such great heel work, and Cedric is good when he's just you know talking shit to the fans. And he has that match with Trevor Lee where he's doing the stalling and all that stuff. He's a really great heel too. But the thing about him as a heel is that he's also not really hateable because he's still the same guy that you always that always blows your mind with how athletic he is with how crispy is. So it's always a struggle for Cedric to get over as a heel, I think. But like you said, he's just done great stuff everywhere. That Kota Ibushi match, it's not my match of the year or anything, but that's a match I would call an instant classic, where as soon as that match was over, the general reaction was just, wow. And that was from that, and that came through on TV, and it came through from the audience that was there for the Cruiserweight Classic taping. You know, the police signed Cedric, and then the Triple H coming out and shaking Cedric's hand and giving the thumbs up like, yeah, we know. You know, that's one of the best moments of 2016. So, look, I have no problem with Cedric. I wish I could have got him on my list. But I that's I love the guy, so I'm just glad we got to talk about him. Yeah, and I, you know I'm just messing with you, <laughs> Quentin. <laughs> well, yeah, it's not a big we deal. both have guys back and forth that, you know. I mean, just oversights or just final cuts that were painful, and I know Cedric had to have been a painful one for you. I mean, nothing is more painful than you having Matt Riddle at 20, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My 18 is Io Shirai. Okay. And well, we'll talk her? about her because I had her earlier at 33. Okay. She did well for you. Um, Io is one of the most talented wrestlers going right now, hands down. It's something that it surprises me that, yeah, Joshi isn't as popular as it used to be, so maybe it's not surprising, but Io Shirai is so fucking good, and it annoys me sometimes that we don't talk about her as one like the top tier workers in the world conversation, because she is there. She is on that level. She had a great match with Kyrie Ojo to start the year, I think that was in January. And then from there, she had a really great match with Viper. And Viper, who isn't the best, but she had a really strong match with her. She had a really strong match with Maya Iwatani in May, who was her tag team partner at the time. And they just went out there and murdered each other. And Io Shirai, something about her that people may not pick up on is she's such a great like prick, heel, when she wants to be as a champion. She has this look about her that's just super dismissive and almost angry that you're even trying to be in the ring with her. Like, she feels disrespected that you even exist. It's almost like how Tanahashi is when Tanahashi goes heel. Where Tanahashi just seems like the biggest asshole in the world. Io Shirai has a, has a, bit, of that her, has a bit of that in her, too. And it's fitting because I think Io Shirai's favorite wrestler is Tanahashi. 
So that's something there. Super athletic. All of her stuff looks tremendous. For for as uh, athletic a style as she works, I've never seen Io Shirai mess up. Like Io Shirai does not slip up on a move. She makes everything that she does look crisp. Her tag team with Mayu and Thunder Rock has produced some really good stuff this year against Kyrie Hojo and Michael Satamora, which is one of the best tag team matches of 2016. They had a good feud against Udo Tai um, that had a lot of heel chicanery, but Io and Mayu are really strong baby faces, so they make it work. Io had a really great match with Tony Storm, and Tony Storm's a girl who I like a lot, but she's not completely developed. And EO does a great job shining her up and making her look like she's a credible threat on her level. Um, the thing that I think may be her crown jewel, well, there's two matches. But one is her title defense against Yoko Bito. And Yoko Bito was someone who had just returned from injury. And, and when she had returned, I don't think she had been very good. She hadn't impressed me much. But when the title match happens, EO Shirai just goes fucking wild and she beats the ever living hell out of her this match is stiff this match is brutal a lot of great near falls and it tells a story of EO being disrespected that this person thinks they can waltz back into the company and think they can beat her that's probably EO's best performance is what you would call a heel this year and one thing that I think puts her over the top and I know you didn't like this match but it was the gauntlet match with the Black Lotus Triad against, um, yeah, Pentagon. And I'm not a big fan of intergender. But Io Shirai came in and kicked Pentagon's ass. She looked like she easily could do that. And that there was no way that it didn't seem believable. Io Shirai's kicks, her drop kicks, the way she throws him, the way she chops him, everything about the way Io Shirai worked is just just made that match have a bit has some credibility. The dive off of um Dragon office, and it felt like a star maker, which is something you can't say about a lot of intergender matches. I mean, other than maybe World's Cutest Tag Team versus the Bucks with Candace LeRae playing face in peril and bleeding and having that crazy photo, what ma- what intergender matches can you say felt like star makers? And I felt like Io Shirai, coming out of that episode, people were blown away by how great Io Shirai was. And I think she's supposed to have an even bigger 2017 with her um, reportedly being set to leave and signed to WWE. I'm assuming for their women's tournament that they plan on doing. And she recently turned heel, turned on Mayu Iwatani, so she's a full-fledged heel now, and they're going to have a title match, I think, on the 22nd, which hopefully that comes out before I do year-end stuff, because that has potential to be incredible. But yeah, I think Io Shirai is just amazing, and it surprises me that people don't talk about her as far as like being in that upper-tier workers in the world. Yep. I mean, you hit pretty much everything. I just make a bigger point about... Um, 
her versatility uh, and and I did not like oh, I have to defend myself I did not like that episode of Lucha Underground but I never said I didn't like the match right um, and I think I even said in the review that I did like the wrestling but I don't like I didn't like the match and the tone or the tone of the episode and I didn't like the way it was presented but the match itself and the work was was great um, but her versatility and you mentioned the Tony Storm match but she also you know has matches with Holla Dead Chris Wolf. Um, I think she got worked Tessa on Blanchard, Kaylee Ray, Kaylee Ray. She can take the younger girls that they're bringing into stardom, make them look legitimate, make, you know, cause obviously they have to stardom has to deal with the fact that Joshi isn't as big as it used to be. So they're bringing in foreigners who aren't necessarily completely, you know, at that level. And Yoshirai does such a great job of making them look good. But then meanwhile, she can turn around and she had a match with Satamora early in the year. Um, you know, and just can have the matches with the vets and the young guys and make everybody look just as good because she's always there 100% and makes everything look phenomenal. Um, huge part of the whole company. I mean, God, it's so hard to think of stardom without Io Shirai, especially this year, um, having long stretches. I think she held the, the one title, like the single, one of the singles titles the whole fucking year. Yeah, and then the tag belt so regular. Yeah, she's held it the whole year. Yeah. So she's held, I think it's like the artist of stardom title the whole year and tag belts off and on. Um, so it's just like so important to the company, such a big deal to the company and always delivering solid main events, solid mid card matches, not, you know, not mid card, but upper mid matches when she needs. And then main events that hold everything together and can make a stardom show feel more filled out and important. So just so important to that company. And, and it's really something that, as you said, should be talked about more that she's carrying an entire company. She's carrying from the top of the card to the bottom of the card, any worker, she can make them look phenomenal. So she just needs to get a lot more credit for being one of the all time greats, honestly. And then not just one of the current greats, but I think she should be in that conversation with great Joshi's of all time. You know, and you mentioned her carrying an entire company on her back. And people always talk about aces in wrestling, you know. We talk about Kento Miyahara. We talk about Trevor Lee. We talk about guys like that, that carry companies on their backs single-handedly and give that company something to promote because you know that person will always bring in some more viewers because that person always delivers in their matches. And Yosha Rai doesn't get talked about enough for being legitimately the ace of stardom. Like, she has held that, that main title for the entire calendar year. She was also holding the tag team belts for most of the year, too. And I have Kento Miyahara higher, so we'll talk about him in a little bit. But Yosha Rai really should get talked about for how much of an ace she really is. No, yeah, there's no question there. And I think that the only argument against it is that stardom isn't big enough, but it's, I mean, they're, it's still impressive. We'll return after these messages. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Voice of Ring of Honors, Kevin Kelly here. I just want to make sure you're all subscribed to all of our great feeds here at Place to Be Nation. Now, it's really easy to do. Just head to iTunes or your preferred podcatcher app today and search for and subscribe to the Place to Be Nation wrestling feed, Place to Be Nation pop feed, pro wrestling only feed, and, of course, the Kevin Kelly Show feed, which includes the full archives of my podcast. Subscribe, listen, and then rate us and leave feedback today. And of course, as always, enjoy all the great action of Ring of Honor Wrestling and everything presented to you on placetobenation.com.
Police Nation's JT Rezero here, and I want to let you know that we have a ton of great podcasts available to you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaySimulation.com, and we offer them to you across two great feeds. On the PlaySimulation Wrestling feed, you can check out Scott Criscolo and me on the Mothership, the place to be podcast with our famous Vintage Vault pay-per-view reviews. PTBN also covers current-day wrestling with the smash hit clotheslines and headlines. Our steady veteran main event, and the beloved monthly pay-per-view reaction shows with immediate feedback on all pro wrestling super shows. Relive wrestling's past with our monthly pay-per-view rewind series led by Ben Morse, the always contentious Dangerous Alliance podcast, and Survey Says, a fun look back at the good, bad, and ugly of WCW. On our very popular Placement Nation Pop podcast feed, we offer such great shows as the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, Rank and File, NBA Team, Lucha Undead, Geek and Sassy, and a veritable podcast heaven for comic fans with hard-traveling fanboys, Sellers Points, Todd Weber's Conversation, and Imaginary Stories. Subscribe to both of those feeds on iTunes and rate and leave feedback for us as well. All of these shows, plus others, available at PlaySimulation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus tournaments, and more. Be sure to support our site by using PlaySimulation.com backslash Amazon when doing your online shopping, and download our free Place to Be Vintage Vault Refresh eBooks via the links on the right-hand side of our site. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar in West Rock, Rhode Island, and Fall River, Massachusetts, TheHistoryOfWrestling.com, and Scott Keats' Blog of Doom. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaySimulation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. The PWO PTBN feed has changed its name, now known simply as Pro Wrestling Only, so it should be easier to find and indeed to say. All of your favorite shows are still here, including Where the Big Boys Play, Letters from Kayfabe, Titans of Wrestling, Tag Teams Back Again, This Week in Wrestling, and many, many more including our full archives of tremendous content. So make sure you subscribe to the Pro Wrestling Only feed today. Now back to the show. Yeah, so um, I guess you're 18 now, right? Yeah, my 18, I guess, as you talk about Aces, is a guy that ever since, um, to me, ever since he won the Strong Climb, he's been the ace of... Indie Japanese wrestling, indie puro, and that's Shuji Ishikawa. I have Shuji higher. That's what I assumed. All right, so you're 17. My 17. No, that was my 17. Oh, I my 18, 18 was Cedric. 18 was Cedric? Yeah. Hold on. Fuck, am I stupid? <laughs> Hold on. So it was my 17. Okay. okay. What's your 17? My 17 is the villain Marty Scarl. Uh, we will not be talking... Oh, actually, I had him lower, so yeah, we're going to talk about him now. Um, now, this is weird, because I would say that he probably had a better 2015 as far as in-ring. But it goes along with like you know what I talked about with Will Ospreay, where what he uh, did, becoming such a big star, that it's hard to deny him having a spot on my list and I think he has the in-ring output to back that up obviously the touring match with Willow Spray is infamous so there's no need to go into detail on that but I think the other places where Marty has shown up he thinks I think he's been really good as well I think his match with Kyle O'Reilly and PWG is one of Kyle's most unheralded matches this year and it's 
one of his best matches, honestly, in what I thought was a weak year for Kyle. Um, I thought he was really good in that match against Mark Andrews. That look because it's Mark Andrews, because it's Marty Scurll, and on a PWG show, then like people aren't really going to talk about it. But that was a tremendous match. He had a really great bowler run, which almost accidentally he got turned babyface at the end of it. But I think, well, I'll talk about it when we get to his WXW work. But Marty is almost like almost is a babyface at this point, and I don't think there's necessarily a problem with that in WXW in the World Tag League where he's teaming with Zack Sabre Jr. Um, Leaders was a heel tag team, essentially. But Marty wound up being the one that pretty much turned face in the aftermath of that, feuding with Jaren Simmons, uh, winning the title, but losing that to um, Axel Deeper Jr. in a screw job fashion, and they'll be having a rematch in the WXW London shows. I think that while I understand the criticisms of Marty as a worker, I understand that he does things that annoy people sometimes. I get that. But for some reason, I think people go overboard on criticizing Marty with that and miss the fact that he has made a gimmick and reinvented himself in a way similar to Musafa Ali, where Musafa Ali was kind of off the radar. And then for some reason in 2016, he blows up. Marty Skrull had been has been around for a while, been around for the European scene in a while. He had been teaming with Zack Sabre Jr. for like eight years already. But... In the last few years, he's made the villain gimmick, and this year was the real breakout. Him becoming a legitimate star, him signing with Ring of Honor, and things seem even brighter for him at this point. I just think for in-ring output and the fact that Marty has become such a big deal, where once Chris Hero leaves, um, from what's being said, when you think about the biggest stars in the independent wrestling scene... How far can you go before you say Marty's girl? So, I mean, that's it for him. But I think Marty's had just a great year in the ring and a, and, um, a great year making himself a star. Yeah, there's no argument against what you said. Um, he's a phenomenal, and I think I'll say this, and people who know my opinions and how I look at wrestling will take this as a slight, and I don't mean it this way, but Marty has become the quintessential sports entertainer this year. And I don't see it as a bad thing. There's a place for that, and he does a great job of it. He can still deliver in the ring. He can still have great matches. He just did the other night at uh, Mystery Vortex. Him and Zack Sabre Jr. tore the place down in a 40-minute match that, as I said, on This Week in Wrestling, felt like a middle finger to anybody that kind of picked apart their their bola match for being too long um, because they just fucking killed it, and they told this amazing epic story over 40 minutes. So he can still bring that, but he wrestles for big-time moments. I mean, Marty Scroll has matches where you can tell that he planned a WrestleMania moment in every match, and that's yeah. what he's doing because he's making himself a star, as you said. And he is at that top level. He is a guy that draws. He is a guy that ROH signed and put the TV title on him instantly because he knew his worth. And, and, you know, if you believe the rumors, he's got a contract where they have to push him or else he's gone. 
and they know that they don't want to lose him. So they're going to do whatever it takes to keep him. And, you know, that just goes to show he's made himself invaluable. He's still got that backbone, I think. There were times where I thought Marty Scroll was a better technical worker than Zack Sabre Jr., um, you know, early on in their careers, not, you know, over the past, like, four or five years has been really no question. But early on, you know, I, I there was times where I would think, you know, Scroll could surpass Marty as a or Marty could surpass Scroll as the technical worker, but he's really gone the other way and and put together some totally different and interesting styles of wrestling, um, and with the character. And as you said, he's become he's not really a babyface. I wouldn't say. I think he's a he's a kind of a undefinable character. Um, if you're playing, uh, you know, EWR or whatever, he got to that point where he's not a heel or a babyface. He's just an epic character that doesn't have an alignment, and that's where he is now. So, yeah, I can't shit on Marty Scroll. I put him at 49 because he he's not, you know, 100% my cup of tea. He's had some matches that definitely miss for me. Yeah. Uh, his, you know, he goes a little bit too far with, as I said, the histrionics and trying to be an entertainer rather than a wrestler, and uh, that takes me out of stuff. I really like when it comes down to it, I really like bare bones shoot style wrestling, and that's why um, he doesn't make it up on my list. But you cannot hate on the guy's hustle. I mean, he's just something else when it comes to marketing himself and becoming this huge star and entertaining a crowd. Oh yeah, for sure. And something you mentioned when you mentioned like Marty lives for being an entertainer, Marty lives for moments, and it sounds like some like something similar to what people would say about a guy that I have higher on my list, Kenny Omega. It feels like those guys just have similarities in how they portray themselves, but also similarities, well, portray, portray themselves and market themselves and make themselves bigger stars using social media, but also in the way they wrestle where they wrestle so that people have a lasting memory of them. And one thing I'll say is that I think, I don't think the like Marty's heel face alignment is what annoys people. I think it's, it's the fact that Marty's name is the villain. And that when your name is so on the nose like that, people would, you know, want you to be, I guess, more of a heel. And outside of the world Osprey feud in progress, or the or early in the year in progress, he just hasn't been that much of a heel. So, I guess that annoys some people. But like I said, when you're as over as Marty is, and you know, in WXW they pretty much had to turn him face. In Rev Pro, he isn't really a heel. In progress, in progress. He's lost a championship, and they're phasing him out. So he might become babyface there. In PWG, he's pre- he he was pretty much being a babyface in Bola. So it's hard to really pinpoint what Marty is, and I think that's the beauty of him to some extent, that he's this kind of enigma where he, I think people get frustrated because they don't know how to define him sometimes. Yeah, no, and, and you're right. It's it's the villain. It's just that he's called the villain, which is so stupid, but it gets on people's nerves. Right, so you already said you're 17, and that was? Shuji Ishikawa, which we'll talk about later. All right, so you're 16. My 16 is Big Daddy Walter, which I believe you had lower. Where did you have him at? I had him at 25. 25, so... I got Big Daddy Walter here at 16. Um, much like the conversation about Io Shirai, he's a guy who can carry an entire company on his back. And, you know, it makes sense because he's got such broad shoulders. But, I mean, WXW is, is nothing without Walter at this point. Um, he's running the school. He fits every part of the card. He really, in some ways, his style of wrestling dictates the style of the company. 
um, they have ambition, and I think that that really comes down to, you know, when they do their big money bola-esque tournament, they also do a shoot-style tournament that really plays into what Walter loves, which is shoot-style. He's a big fan of the shoot-style grappling and the realistic wrestling, and I just love that about him. Everything he does is fucking legit, just stiff all the way through. And, uh, yeah, working, turning heel this year with um, starting out the year – with uh, Zack Sabre Jr. and the Zack Daddy team, which I think was primarily, you know, late 2015 and kind of crept into 2016 very, very minimally. Um, he's in this babyface tag team with a super over guy like Zack. And then towards the middle of this year, he's tagging with Thatcher. And then they turn completely heel and they form ring comp with Thatcher, him, and Dieter. Dieter turning heel, I think a lot of people look at as the bigger deal yeah. because he's kind of the tried and true babyface. But Walter turning heel there just... It just it really gave, legitimizes yeah, the whole thing. I was to say the exact same word. It gave legitimacy to Axel Dieter Jr. turning heel because now he has this big, bad face of the company dude that's been around from the beginning backing up what he's doing, too. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, so as I as I talked about in the 16 carat, he goes out in the first round to the eventual winner who's Zack Sabre Jr. And just, I think, one of Zack's best matches, which I've said a lot. But I think Walter and Zack have phenomenal chemistry together. And for people who think that Zack only works this one style, which a lot of times is kind of – it makes it look too easy. It's an exhibition. He just gobbles guys up. you got to be watching his matches with, with Walter because Walter takes Zach to places that no one really does. He beats the shit out of him. He's got to get fired up to get anything on him. Walter is so sound on the mat as also – and also being a big striker and a big powerhouse that it's kind of like you just got to see Zach do everything he can to keep up with this guy. And usually you're used to all the other wrestlers being taken aback by Zach, which is really amazing. Um, then he has the ambition, the shoot fight with, with Thatcher that's just kind of similar, but it's similar in the sense that it's a grappling match and a grappling battle, but totally different in that it's 100% real. It feels like it's the you know 1920s and these two guys are just actually wrestling each other. There's nothing, you know, no air in between them. They're just beating the crap out of each other. Um, Ring comp was such an important part of the, the tag tournament as a whole. Um, just like the story that you're telling with them throughout the entire tournament really being the only dominant heels of the entire thing i mean everybody else in there can be seen as tweener or babyface. um i think you said that you saw the leaders as a heel team in that tournament but i really don't didn't see it um it, like they were the only heels in the whole tournament well, so they had to really i was saying like um more like the what i guess the way like the cheating and all that stuff that's how they were heels but they right. were like more they could you could have called them tweeners ring con for the only true heels i'd agree yeah, and they had to carry the brunt of being the only heels throughout the whole thing, and they just do such a great job of getting so much heat. Um, yeah, then meanwhile, you have the, the inner circle match with JT Dunn, so good. He comes in in the Atlas tournament, and every match that he has in the Atlas tournament I thought was you know, good to great, depending on who he's going against. And then meanwhile, he blows every Atlas tournament match out of the water with his match with Chris Hero um, during the Super Strong South 16, which turns out to be the biggest kind of Haas fight, big lads match of the entire year, I think. I don't know if there's another big lads match that compares to that. It just it had this 
real fucking amazing feel of giants who can wrestle and grapple and do everything. And I say Walter is the the closest thing we have to a, a real life giant right now in wrestling. I don't think that there's anybody else that carries themselves with the same gravitas that Walter does um, as a guy who could just do everything, but is also just a fucking monster. Um, and there's just, there's no question about just his monster dumb. So yeah, I think again, as I said, carrying the whole company on his back and just being just this unbeatable monster. He's just so phenomenal. Yeah. I agree with, with everything you said and something that I've kind of made it, my mission too, and I know other people on the Wrestling World Word site have, is that as time goes on, we really need to start talking about these WXW guys as, you know, these are some of the best guys that have been wrestling in the 21st century. You know, your bad bonuses, your absolute Andes. And at the top of that list is Walter, because for so long, he's been great. And in 2016, he had another great year to chalk up, but honestly... And this goes back to the point, like, man, Walter's been doing this for so long, though. Like, Walter has been great at kicking ass and feeling legit for such a long time. And it just feels like he'll never get his due for him being how great as he is. But we can do our best to do that on a, on a show like this. And Walter's fantastic. Great tag team guy. Great singles guy if they, when they want to. People don't pay attention to the fact that he started the year off as a babyface in the most hated feud in the company with Cerberus against uh, Hot and Spicy and Walter. They had a War Games match that was fantastic and the brunt of that was carried by Walter and his disdain for everyone on the Cerberus team but mainly his ex-tag team partner Robert Dreisker. Um, once he turns heel um, again on once he turns heel after the Zack Sabre Jr. match which was pretty much Walter being fed up he lost to his tag team partner, and he just got even more fed up with everything going on, turning heel and turning into the biggest bully in the company and being the big, bad best friend for Axel Dieter Jr., who is essentially Randy Orton um, in this character where he's having everything handed to him. You have Walter, who feels like his bodyguard in some ways. He works great on their bigger shows, on the 16 Carat, on a tag league, on a Back to Roots or Dead End. But even on their smaller scale shows, like you mentioned, an ambition or an inner circle, he gives the exact same effort. And, you know, I just love Walter because regardless of what he's doing, the guy busts his ass. Yeah, and on Shotgun, I mean, just recently there's an episode with him versus Ilya Dragunov that I think Walter, as a heel, still did so much to put Dragunov over that where you saw, you know, a much smaller man who was starting to feel legitimate as a topper, like a top level guy who could go one on one with a, a man so much larger than him. And it just, it just again plays into Walter's skills where no matter where, what show it is, he's giving 110%. And that's because, I mean, it's, it seems to be a theme with our guys is it's how committed and how invested they are in the wrestling is really what shows through for a lot of these guys. Yeah, so that was your 16? That was 16, yeah. All right, so my 16, and I remember you had them on your list earlier, but my 16 is the Revival. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had them. Uh, they were in, they were, I think, on the first episode. Yeah, so. Let me see where I had them, just to be clear. Uh, 29, actually. Oh, okay. So when I told Timothy, like, hey, if you want to put a tag team on the list, that you can go ahead. 
and the reason why I did that was mainly because I was like, fuck, I can't leave a revival off my list. Like, I'm looking at my, I was looking at my list, and I had it filled out, and I'm just like, man, this doesn't feel right. And I'm like, man, I'm missing the revival. I'm missing the top guys. And, <laughs> I mean, just, it just felt wrong. And, man, what can you say about these two? I mean, the best way to put it is that they're bringing old Southern tag psychology, but adding in what you would call modern work rate, however you define work rate, you know, having these amazing sequences, amazing finishes, some really smart ways they set up um, the hot tags and their just overall heel work, cutting off the ring beautifully, the way they employ, you know, just stuff that we've seen for so long, but making it feel new again, which is something that Revival just does so well. They make what's old feel new. And it doesn't feel like they're being a tribute act. It feels like they're adding on more and more layers to what Arn and Tully did, to what the Rock and Roll Express did. It just I mean the Midnight Express did. It just feels like something that you would you like you would feel like you would think you saw in the nineteen eighties. But it never reaches the point where you think that it goes too far of being a tribute. They just employ enough of those tactics to let you know that they are students of the game and they keep their eyes on things that are like, you know, before their time. But they also keep up with what's hot right now. And that's hot finishes and hot um, finishing runs. And they set that stuff up so well. I mean, they're the best tag team in wrestling. I mean, that's just the truth. They've made the NXT tag division, which for so long was the weak point of NXT shows. You know, from 2014 to late 2015, I'd say, you could say that the tag matches were perennially the weakest things on the NXT TakeOver shows. But once once they start pushing the revival, is that that all turns around. They have the great feud with Enzo and Cass, which showed that Enzo and Cass were actually pretty great when you put them in a Southern Tag formula. And then you have the revival versus American Alpha feud, which is just so good because it's like pretty much the Steiners versus you know, the Midnight Express or something, like, you know, the Jordan and Gable team are these jocks who are extremely athletic and fiery, and they always have great hot tags, and Jordan, Jason Jordan is great at what he's doing. But the Revival, to make those matches work, you have to build sympathy. You have to get those cutoffs. You have to get those teases of getting the tag, but um, getting so close to the tag, but not getting it. And they do such a great job at shining up American Alpha to the point where, man, they had to go, they shot them up to the main roster so fast because they saw how great they were in those in, in that feud. And I think the cherry on top was, you know, I felt like a lot of people were like, oh man, the American, the American Alpha and Revival feud, you know, that was great for both guys, both teams, but what else can the Revival do? And the Revival went out there and they have their feud against Ciampa and Gargano. And I didn't, lo- I, I loved the first match, but I didn't love it as much as some people did. I gave it four and a quarter stars. The, like the work from the revival wasn't the problem. There were other things about it that annoyed me, but it was a great performance from the revival. And I think the match from NXT Toronto was so great, like borderline perfect match with great tag team psychology, great callbacks, uh, great ways to get to the finishes um, 
just a really masterpiece of a tag match. And I think that now they now that they don't have really anything anything else to do in NXT, they're more than likely going up to the main roster at some point. But man, I think for what they accomplished making an NXT tag division relevant and making old traits in wrestling relevant again, but not getting overbearing, I thought more than deserve, more than deserve, more than deserves praise. It deserves the fact that they are definitively the best tag team in the world. There's no question; they 100 percent are. Um, I had a, I had I you know got the Young Bucks on my list too, but the Revival was the was the one that popped in my head first. Honestly, um, when I went to the live NXT show, they weren't even there, and the shirt that I wanted was for the Revival. You know, and I bought that's what that's the shirt I bought from WWE. The first piece of merchandise that I ever bought from the WWE was a revival shirt, and that just goes to show, as you said, they bring back that old style. Um, it's updated, and I knew there was something there when they were the mechanics or yeah. when they were in the, the French Foreign Legion, you know, and they were um starting to kind of do something. I said, Oh, these guys are just really good old school but as they did get that chance when the women's revolution disappeared from nxt and people were saying well what's it going to be well it turned into it was the tag teams and it was the tag team revolution and it was spearheaded 100 percent by the revival um as you said american alpha were fun but obviously they're not at that level they need dance partners like the revival to make them look great and that's what they did um I mean, these guys just make everybody look fantastic. The the stuff with DIY. I mean, I saw DIY against uh, the American Wolves live, and it was disappointing. <laughs> you know, it, yeah. it was slightly disappointing. But you see DIY against the Revival, and every time they knock it out of the park because of the way that they tell stories and the way they put matches together, there's just – they are the epitome of what – the old timers are talking about, you know, that gets shit on all the time. Oh, he's just, they just want you to slow down because they can't do it anymore. And the young guys know what they're talking about. Well, the revival showed that Jim Cornette was kind of right. <laughs> as shitty as it is to say it, it's like, slow down, tell a story. The old tricks still work. And it just proved to be true with the revival. Yeah, and that was my 16, so my 15. And I know you didn't have, you know, what you would call any WWE workers on your list besides the Revival. But my number 15 is The Miz. Ooh, that's a, yeah, I, I didn't get him. Um, the Miz has been really good and sometimes great for a really long time. And by really long, I mean it when I can say even as early as 2007, you know, doing stuff with John Morrison um, is that he was good. But for some reason, in 2016, everything came together for him. He he starts the year being a big part in getting AJ Styles over in the, in the WWE. People don't give him enough credit for that because obviously the big feud was AJ versus Jericho and after that AJ versus Reigns happens. But Miz, even though he was a low-key player, he was a reason why AJ Styles was getting over in the WWE because he's over here in these segments and in these matches with the Miz who has this equity with the fans because he's been such a strong character and strong presence on the TV for a long time. 
that with Miz is going out there and calling AJ Styles the redneck rookie and berating him and forcing AJ to get mad and defend himself, AJ is getting over because people hate the Miz so much. He was getting over as a babyface because of that. And then people always had a problem with Miz in the ring. In the ring, Miz more than held his own with AJ Styles. One of the greatest wrestlers wrestlers of all time. Miz was holding his own just fine in those matches. He was even having, you know, the best matches of Chris Jericho's 2016. You know, for a guy in Chris Jericho who had multiple opportunities to face AJ Styles, his best work came facing the Miz. I think that says something there. And then we get to when he wins the Intercontinental title. His wife, Maurice, comes back to the WWE and they become a great pairing. Um, they he takes the title from Zack Ryder. Um, he's a real scummy, cheating heel, back to his roots, and then he just goes on to have a tremendous long reign with the title. Even though there's a short break where Dolph Ziggler wins it, you know it's pretty much an extended Miz reign. And he fuses with Cesaro, has some good matches there. The Fatal Four Way from Extreme Rules is tremendous, and it's Miz, you know, in the middle of all these great wrestlers that have all these cool spots and moves like Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens and Cesaro miss us to sneak a victory and then the Dolph Ziggler feud happens and they just strike gold. Dolph Ziggler, a guy who's been re- rehabbed and then dropped so many times by this company that it's not even funny. He got rehabbed again by working with The Miz and it, and it provided some of the best matches either guy have ever had Specifically, a backlash where I thought that was one of the best matches in all of WWE this year. Just a tremendous feud, great promo work. Um, people, and it's a match. It's a match that will never happen. But he got people so excited after that talking smack segment where he just goes off on Daniel Bryan, and it's amazing to me because it's a show that goes on after SmackDown. It's a network exclusive. It's like, you know, the Raw pre-show or the Raw post-show. Like, whatever. Who cares? Well, The Miz made you care because he just did one of the most... Talking about promos in all of wrestling this year. And he did that on a show that a lot of people have probably never seen. And the fact is that he's been do- been able, been capable of all that stuff for such a long time. But people are just now noticing it. You know great heel. He's one of the last true heels in wrestling where he doesn't wrestle, you know, to get fans cheering for him. He doesn't wrestle to have cool sequences. He doesn't wrestle to get more over. He wrestles to get heat. He always does what he does so that people will boo him. And it's something that a lot of we don't have. We don't have any more people that you can call true heels. And Miz defines what a true heel is in wrestling in 2016. And, you know, I think the guy is tremendous. And I'm happy that People have started to take notice for how good The Miz is and for how good The Miz has been for a long time. This was a long time coming. It's a career year for him. But, man, I just wish people would have noticed, like, you know, before that, yeah, Miz has been really good for a while. Yeah, I mean, when Miz was tagging with uh, Morrison early on, you could tell that he had something. Even if he wasn't the best, you know, natural athlete in the ring. Fuck. I mean, CM Punk was a shitty natural athlete, guys. Just kind of get that out of your head. That's not what wrestling is all about. 
Um, then when he was you know running with the U.S. title and he had the money in the bank at the same time, that's when I started noticing this guy has got something. And he plays up into main eventing WrestleMania, and that just goes into his entire career. He can take whatever's given to him and make it the best it's going to be and make it bigger than it's going to be. After everyone was going gaga over John Cena revitalizing the U.S. title and it, people were saying, what are they going to do about the IC title? Daniel Bryan's going to revitalize the IC title, and it never happened. Then they get it to Ryback, and Ryback tries to do what he can do, um, but nothing really comes from it. Then you know, Kalisto, or actually Kalisto had the U.S. title, but give Kevin from Owens, there... Kevin Owens the title, Dean Ambrose the title. Yeah, it goes all over the place. Then finally it lands on The Miz, and The Miz makes the IC title important. And the way he does it is with the promos and with talking about it like it matters. You know, saying like, I'm the number one champion on this brand. I'm the one who's had it the longest. He makes a big deal. He's got the full act put together with the wife. I mean, Maurice and him are just made for each other. It's so insane that it took them this long to really put them together as an act when they've been married for so long. Um, They just work so well together. And yeah, the guy makes the best of everything that's given to him, makes everything seem important, um, and just really carries entire entire brands. And when you talk about Talking Smack, no one was talking about Talking Smack until that promo. And then it became, oh, this is the best show. This is the show I want to see. And it was all because of The Miz. And you're 100% right there. What The Miz did with Daniel Bryan off the cuff, showing that he doesn't need to be scripted. But you know what? He can be scripted and make it work. He can do it all. So the guy is just super talented. Um, I was never a Miz hater. So, you know, obviously that's probably something that's like, really easy and everyone wants to say now as they're starting to notice that he's good but in all honesty i mean i've i'm pretty open and truthful about it i thought the miz had something early on and uh, i've always kind of thought that he's underappreciated for just what a great wrestler he is and you know it was deceptive how long he's been around and i mentioned it you know you could start seeing brilliance from the miz as early as 2007 and I think it's been long enough to say, and I think he like what he's done, what he does is just so ridiculous. From being, you know, who can you say consistently from 2007 to now? You know, maybe John Cena. You know, you could throw in CM Punk if you wanted to, but who could you say has been a better promo guy than Miz? That's hard because he's been a really great promo guy almost almost from the beginning, and I think. He's one of the best WWE through and through guys ever for what WWE wants and what WWE tries to be and WWE tries to be mainstream and have access accessibility. The Miz personifies that. The Miz is someone that can go onto these, you know, media events, to these movies, do all that stuff and then come back to WWE, come back to SmackDown and cut his promos and have great matches. The guy just does every single thing well and I'm glad 2016 was a starting point that people were like oh man the Miz is really great but I hope this continues because this is a guy that we really should be taking more seriously for his for like for what he's done for this company in the last few years hey man I can't argue with you we're looking at the uh, 2016 GWE list I think Miz should be on a lot more people's ballots yeah, I think he will honestly um, so you're 15. My 15 is Rey Mysterio. Wow. <laughs> Whoa. You know, I did not even consider Rey Mysterio. So that's 
okay, I've liked what he I've liked what he's done a lot on Lucha Underground, and that's the bulk of his case. So, you know. I mean, he's had some other matches here and there. There's the AJ Styles yeah. and the Jay Lethal matches in that weird five star thing. Yeah. Um, there was yeah, a tag team, him and Matt Hardy. There's Russell Khan. There's the WrestleCon trios that was the best match on that show by far. Um, so, I mean, he's had some other stuff. He's had some stuff in, in AAA, um, mostly trios. But, I mean, that's where the bulk of his case is made is the trios. Um, he's done just really well, especially in Lucha Underground with the trio with him, Ricochet and Ray Horace, um, really lending his credibility on um, to them to become bigger and more important stars, I think, even outside of the world of Lucha Underground. I feel like Ricochet is seen as a bigger star because of having worked with Rey Mysterio there. Um, I think Rey Mysterio is really becoming the epitome of what you hope for, for kind of these old Lucha legends. A lot of them, they get broken down into their older age. They stick around for big paychecks. Um, Rey Mysterio is definitely not working for free, but... He's definitely bringing a lot more to the table than a lot of them, and he's a lot more gracious and open to putting people over, making others look really good, because I think Rey Mysterio understands it a lot better, and I hope that he becomes that ambassador of a little bit more of the Americanized way of looking at things to Lucha Libre in that you don't have to 100% protect yourself by never losing you know, straight up singles matches to be a star. And that if you are a star winning and losing, isn't really going to be the end all be all. It is important. I'm not one of these people who says winning and losing isn't important, but I think it's really interesting. And I think Rey Mysterio lending so much of his credibility to the wrestling industry by coming back as a legend and wrestling and being game and really going all out for a man of his age and always having matches that tell great stories, um, always playing up his spots really well, selling super well, big high-flying spots, updating his style, hitting Canadian destroyers, going all over the place with wacky stuff. I mean, he's a guy who at his age and at this point in his career, he doesn't need to be doing this and he's really going out of his way to you know earn his keep and make sure that he is just as important as he thinks he is to wrestling in general. Yeah, and all everything you said was spot on. You know, the re- like the reasoning you gave of him, you know, not having to do what he what he does at this age and the reputation that he has, similar to the reasoning that I've used for people like you know Michael Satamora and Negro Casas and Ali Park being on my list. So maybe I should have gave Ray some more consideration there because Ray, you know. L.A. Park is selfish, so I'm not going to say him, but like Ray, Negro, and Micah were all super selfless workers and that they've already done what they need to do in their careers. Yeah, Ray will, look, he won't come for cheap, but when Ray cares about something and when Ray wants to get something over, Ray's going to do it. And you and um, I think that's really evident in that match against um, Ricochet from... As um from um Ultima Lucha Dose. Ultima Lucha, yeah. and it's something that's a real student versus teacher match, but not in the way where it's like uh, I'm old, but I have a little bit left in the tank. I haven't taught you everything I know. It's Rey Mysterio being I'm still great, but can you be as great as me? And Ricochet doesn't get Ricochet doesn't get there. He loses the match. It's an emotional moment, but Rey Mysterio does a really great job not making it seem like he's so much better than Ricochet. That Ricochet is like right there. He's right there on the cusp of reaching that top tier of all-time greats, but Rey Mysterio is like, eh, 
you still have a way to go. And Ray, for the knee surgeries, all the injuries, and just everything that he's had to go through to have such a rejuvenated year is incredible. So, look, I have no problem with Rey Mysterio being that high on your list. Yeah, I mean, I I think he was great. You want me to go into uh, 14? Yes. Okay, so my 14, this is iffy. I'm 50-50. I don't know if we're going to be talking about him later or if we're talking about him now, but it's uh, Daisuke Sakamoto. I don't have him. Wow, that's interesting. Was he, uh, did you think about him at all? No, and I and I said this on um, We Don't Know Wrestling 100 Forums, but I like Daisuke a lot. But the problem with him is that I just feel like his resume is weaker than it would have been in other years. And I think he was battling injuries, so that may be why you saw him not hiding, but the bulk of his matches were tag team matches. Still teaming with Yoko Bayashi. Um, so because he doesn't he doesn't have the singles matches on his resume, and because I felt like the tag team matches he had didn't reach the heights that they did last year, they didn't make my list. You know, you know, I didn't really consider Daisuke, but if I was consider anyone from the Strong BA tag team, it would have been Yuji because Yuji had more of a singles resume to boast, and Sekimoto just doesn't just didn't. Yeah, and I can see that, and I totally get it. But for me, um, it really comes down to very similarly to Walter and just the way that he's such a big part of Big Japan in general and really helping revitalize All Japan and indie wrestling in Japan in general. Um, He is kind of playing support roles in tag teams and trio matches um, throughout the year. But, I mean, the guy just, when he comes in, there's an air of seriousness that hits a match every time. Like the mood really changes to me, even in random tag team matches. Um, his singles roster, I think some of his best matches were in the champions carnival this year. And otherwise he hasn't had a lot of great singles matches, but I mean, he can go from wrestling Zeus to, uh, you know, Jun Akiyama to Kento Miyahara and having really different matches. Um, but every time just kind of being super satisfied and he's, well, I mean, I guess what he brings to the table is very similar in every match, but it's different stories to the match that he does a really great job of, which is something that I always applaud as someone who can stay very consistent to their character so that I can be believable across the board, but then still find ways to tell unique and interesting stories, which he does a great job of. Um, the feuds with the big guns, I think did such an amazing job to really legitimize Zeus and even the bodyguard as being not just bodyguard guys but guys that can be taken seriously at the top of the card in all japan and in big japan so i thought that that was you know a lot of that came from daisuke and the way that he worked those matches with them uh, putting them at his level and as his equal um and just super impressive every time i mean the guy is just even if he is kind of injured and he's hiding out and he's playing more of a support role throughout i think he always as i said really brings something awesome to the table in every match so um, that's why he kind of made my uh, my list this year, and I can definitely see where you're coming from. I think he definitely had a stronger case last year, but I still really appreciated everything I saw from him this year. Oh, yeah, in general, Daisuke is a guy that I'm not sure people will ever give enough credit for you know, being the king and being the face of Japanese indies. So that's something that you know a lot of people, if you're not paying attention or don't care about that stuff, that it won't mean much to you. But... For how much he means to that scene in particular, 
yeah, I definitely understand that. Where he can go anywhere, and Seth Yamoto is a big deal, regardless of you know a tag match, singles match, whatever. He's a big deal, and he is a big part of All Japan this year. Where obviously there's the stuff Team um, Okabayashi against Big Guns, but he won the Champions Carnival, and it was something that shocked a lot of people because he was facing Zeus. And Sekimoto, the guy who's not signed to All Japan, the guy who's a big Japan guy, who's an indie guy that works anywhere, he won it. And he went on to have a really great match with Kento Miyahara for the title on, I think, May 21st. And that helped legitimize Kento Miyahara because he's facing big, bad Sekimoto, king of the indies. And that's another notch on Kento Miyahara's belt for what he did in 2016. But yeah, Daisuke, I love him. I think this was a year where... He wasn't half-assing it. The guy always puts in effort, so I'm not saying that he was hiding. But I'm saying that he wrestled in so many tag team matches that I think it was to take some of the load off because the guy is injured. The guy is battling injuries. And I think 2017, he may even be taking a bit of a break. But he has been a guy that I think has been really great in tag matches. So, yeah, um... Well, as I said, I think it's important to think of there was a support role. I mean, 2016 in Big Japan and All Japan especially were about growing, and a big part of it was growing new stars. Yeah. And I think that the old guard being willing to take a backseat and play support to help put over the new guard was really important. Yes. So I think it, as you're, it's true. He's older and he is injured because of working such a physical style for so long. But also, I mean, I think he could have been a guy who says, well, fuck it. I'm still at the top of the card and I'm still working big singles match. I mean, I hate to say it because you know, the way that he died, but one that comes to mind is Masawa. And it's kind of like Masawa, even towards the end was pushing himself at the top of the card every night and not kind of taking a back seat to let the new guard get over. Right. So, that was your 14. Yeah. Okay, and you had this guy on part two, but my 14 is Kenny Omega. There we go. Uh, so, would be calling him the like most debated guy in wrestling this year be accurate? Um... Jesus, I mean, yeah, in some ways, I think, yeah, I mean, he he really hits some people the right way and some people the wrong way, and then he hits some people in the right way, the wrong, but he does it the wrong way, and other people, it's the inverse, so it's, it is a, he's a whole big can of worms that's really tough to even talk about, and I think most people aren't even 100% sure how they feel about him. Um... I've loved Kenny Omega for a long time. The guy has been one of my favorites for a while. I think even as early as, say, like 2009, you could see that there was something special in Kenny Omega as a talent. He just has an innate charisma, innate likability, innate drive to be great more than anyone else. So as far as his career goes, obviously he goes to DDT, becomes a star there. He does stuff you know, a little bit in the U.S. Indies, but mainly his home was DDT. And in 2015, well, 2014, he ventures out, leaves DDT, signs to New Japan. 2015, he goes all year being a junior, messing around, doing that stuff. 2016 is the year he was up to heavyweight. And it's one of the best examples you can give 
of making a junior and turning them into a heavyweight and not making it feel forced. You know, Kenny Omega always felt like when he was given the chance that he could have been just as big as passable at club leaders. He could have been just as good as AJ Styles. He could have been just as good as Prince Devitt. And I think in 2016, he proved that. The year starts for him when he attacks Shinsuke Nakamura on New Year Dash, and he also lays out AJ Styles, effectively kicking him out of Bullet Club. Kenny Omega is now christened as the new leader, the elite forms. And I think Kenny Omega's trajectory is a bit different if he has the match with Shinsuke Nakamura for the IC title. But Nakamura leaving kind of abruptly um, takes that off the table, so they have to substitute that for Tanahashi. But I think that's still a, that's still a great match. His match with Tanahashi from February at New Beginning in Niigata. Great match, focused on limb work. Kenny Omega was great selling, which is going to be a big talking point for for the rest of, about, for of them, what I'm about to say. But great selling the leg there. Kamafu was a big star facing, you know, Hiroshi fucking Tanahashi, you know, the ace of the universe, the guy that's been the linchpin of New Japan for the last few years. And then he that turns into a few with Michael Elgin that had some great matches on smaller shows. I didn't like their big match on Dominion because it was a ladder match. A ladder matches typically aren't my thing. But I thought the other stuff they did this year was really great. Now, what happens is that there's a bit of a gap in what Kenny Omega did. Kenny Omega does from February to August. That exists because obviously, from the New Japan schedule, that if you're not in a title program, if you're not working title matches, then you're kind of just messing around on the undercard. Now, usually that would be a detriment for someone. But I think Kenny Omega used his time on the undercard very, very well. He capitalized off what the Young Bucks do. And the Young Bucks, you know, make stars of themselves by doing stuff on social media. And Kenny Omega started doing stuff with them, posting videos on YouTube and Twitter, doing some comedy stuff. But also delivering in the ring as the elite, having really strong matches um, that... Elite versus ACH Sidon and Kushida match from some ROH show. I forgot which one it was. <laughs> but that match tore the house down, and that was a fantastic match. And there were so many fun elite tag matches, you know, in like, you know, never six man never six man tags or, you know, a random New Japan house show on the undercard. But I think the elite act was constantly entertaining. And because I like the elite I think that's why I have Kenny Omega higher on my list because if I didn't like the elite shtick, if I didn't like what the elite was doing, then I would have had him lower because he doesn't have the same output some other guys do. But I think the elite was a tremendous trio and, you know, did enough to make themselves relevant even more than they were before. And it's the fact, you know, I think everyone that does the Terminator thing you know, Adam Cole does it now. The Young Bucks do it in the States. Kenny Omega still does it in Japan. But Kenny Omega started doing that Terminator thing where they start doing the Terminator theme and the crowd starts clapping clapping along with it. And little things like that, you know, getting the crowd integrated to something that they kind of came up with randomly. Um, then the G1 happens. 
And before even the last two nights, I thought Kenny Omega was the best guy in the G1. I was saying this before to you. You remember this pretty well that, look, man, the Hanma match, Elgin match, Yoshihashi match. Man, Kenny Omega is really good in this G1. And then the last two nights happen. And then the match with Naito happens, which is just... It's like my number two match of the year, and it's something that I've watched like five times at this point. But I still can't believe that match is real. And it's just like something that's great selling, uh, amazing crowd. Kenny Omega starts off as a heel, but his selling is so strong. He has He's so fired up. The desire that he has to be great shows up so much that he turns the crowd, you know, to rooting for him. And then the next night in the final is the match with Hiroki Goto, who Goto, who a lot of people don't like, they go out there and have a tremendous final. And this means a lot to me. But the finish to the Goto match had maybe the single greatest use of symbolism ever in wrestling, where Omega does the, does the um, Bloody Sunday. He does the Styles Clash. And then he does the one-winged angel to finally get the win over Hiroki Goto. It's an homage to the lineage of Bullet Club leaders. Where he does the Bloody Sunday, a la Prince Devitt. He does the Styles Clash, a la AJ Styles. Those don't get him the victory. But the one-winged angel, his finisher, is what gets him the victory. And he's the one, not those other guys. He's the one that wins the G1. And that's just symbolism and storytelling at its finest. And then even in that match, referencing Kota Ibushi by doing that um, sit-out-last ride and the Phoenix Splash. Um, God, Kenny Omega is just so fucking smart with stuff like that. He has such an eye for nuances and little details and wrestling. For you know the people that criticize Kenny Omega, you would think that they would like that. Someone that pays attention to detail so much. But no, because he's goofy and because he does wacky shit and because he hangs with the Young Bucks, there's something wrong with him. But you would think that people would like a guy that pays attention to detail so much. And he goes on even past that. He has great briefcase um, great briefcase defenses against Yoshihashi and against Goto that are arguably better than the matches he had with them in the G1. And man, I don't I just don't think there's anyone that wants to be a better wrestler than Kenny Omega. Kenny Omega has such an eye for detail and such a desire to be great where it's hard to deny him. The guy started off as a junior in his company, and in 2016, he turned the company on his head in one weekend. And that's incredible to me. And as we're recording this, we're a little less than two or three weeks away from Wrestle Kingdom, and he's going to be facing Kazuchika Okada in the main event. And... I'll be damned if Kenny Omega isn't going to try his best to have the best match ever. He's a guy that's waited for this opportunity his whole life. He gets the main event in the Tokyo Dome as a heavyweight, and all eyes are on him. He's the first North American to ever win the G1. I'm just... There's no way Kenny Omega lets the opportunity slip, and I just think the guy's an incredible professional wrestler where you would think the people that criticize him would like understand why Kenny Omega has this um, cult following with them somewhat. You would wish that they could get it, but they can't. And I've described Kenny Omega as the modern wrestler 
um, kind of the social media wrestler, and it's been played up to the hilt this year. Um, his matches, his work is gifable, and it always has been. Even before gifs were as widely spread as they are, he was the first kind of YouTube wrestling star with the fight against the the girl. You know what I mean? That's yeah. the one or the the king of the anywhere match. That stuff all went viral on the internet multiple times, over and over again. YouTube videos this year and through his whole run in New Japan. He has found a way to constantly play with social media to create a new form of kayfabe. And you mentioned the Young Bucks, and the Young Bucks, I said the similar thing. They kind of create a new level of kayfabe on the internet. He openly mocks and talks about, you know, the stuff with Ibushi, and then I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it on the on the press conferences. Or, or even he's, the, he's, or even this like stuff teasing with the New Day. He's, yeah, exactly. That's where I was going next. He's teasing stuff with the New Day. He's. I loved his ROH commercial where he just had this attitude where you could just tell he's like, you know, they said I burned this bridge, they were shitty to me, and now they fucking beg me to come back. You know what I mean? And he's trying to sell this his. Oh, this is the Kenny Omega ROH shirt, and you could just tell the attitude that he has is like, I didn't have to do a goddamn thing to change or apologize or do anything, and you guys are begging me to come back because I'm the biggest fucking deal, and that's exactly what he did. So it's just the guy is just phenomenal. I've loved him from the moment I first saw him, which was. God, it would have had to have been early. Like, it was the HDNet era of ROH is when I started seeing him on the TV there, and I fell in love with him instantly, and I've never looked back. I've always been a Kenny Omega guy. Um, I think he was hands down my star of the G1. I don't think anybody else had better matches than him on the G1 every night. Um, as you talk about the story, just delivering all the way through my only criticism of him. And it's not even a criticism. It's just unfair that following AJ, I felt that AJ's trios matches with the bucks. AJ did a better job of differentiating himself and making himself seem like a bigger star while Omega really feels to have integrated himself into the young bucks and kind of created the elite moniker to just be like, we are the young bucks. While I felt like AJ felt like, he was AJ Styles, the big star, tagging with the Young Bucks. I guess. I guess a counterpoint there is that I think it's. I think that's kind of impressive too. Is that Kenny Omega seamlessly, you know, feels like he's one of the Young Bucks. They all fit in together. They all feel like they're one, you know, big unit. But then when Kenny Omega branches off and does his own thing, and it's noticeable because when he does his own thing, he wears the black tights. When he's with the Young Bucks, he wears the colorful tights. But when serious Kenny Omega shows up. He feels like a big star, and I think that's something AJ didn't really have, where AJ always felt like AJ. But I think Kenny Omega being able to have that duality with him is a good thing. Yeah, no, and it's it's hard to not see it both ways, but I just, from just the conversation of being a star, I think he, he drops the ball in that regard. But you're right about being able to show that versatility, um, so that's also important to be able to kind of do that. Um and yeah, when it comes down to it, I mean, the guy is just phenomenal. That's it. Yeah. So um, that was my fourteen. You already did your fourteen. Yeah. All right. So my thirteen. I know you don't have them. Is Kazuchika Okada. I do not. And uh, it's really just because I thought that he kind of fell on his face, but early in the year, I think he was on trail and on the trek to 
be in the on the top fifty for sure. And I, I definitely thought um, he would make it by the end of the year because I was really liking him early on. But I think he had a weak showing in the G one, and he hasn't really done much since to kind of uh, redeem himself. Yeah, I can see that. Um, he starts off the year obviously with the uh, Matt versus Tanahashi at Wrestle Kingdom ten. I didn't love it as much as other people did, surprisingly, because I championed that feud a lot as being like an all-time great in-the-ring feud. I gave it four and a quarter, which is still great, but it's like, you know, I didn't love it the way some people did. But after that, he goes into the feud. Well, I'm going to skip the go-to feud, because that maybe I shouldn't skip it, because that goes into the case of why maybe he should be lower, or why he shouldn't be on someone's list, because the go-to feud lays lays an egg. Now, I'm not sure if you can blame that on Okada because he doesn't control how Hiroki Goto works. So, maybe that's not fair to blame Okada on that one, but that feud under-delivers. But after that, we go into Okada versus Naito. And I think that's part of the reason why I have him so highly. Where I don't think the matches were amazing. One match I gave four stars to. That's the highest match. Uh, that's the highest rating I gave the matches between them. But I think the feud was brilliant and it made people see Okada in a different light not as in like the Japanese fans but it made people like seem like oh man to see a Naito he's this rebel going against a system this company that's tried to screw him so many times and then here's Okada the golden boy and Naito's repelling and revolting against the idea of Okada you know similar to what CM Punk was doing against John Cena you know, saying, I don't hate the idea. Well, I don't hate, you know, Kazuchika Okada himself. I hate the, I hate the idea of Okada. I hate the the fact that Kadani is hand-chosen him and Gato was his manager. And, Ga- and Kazuchika Okada just has every everyone in his pocket and he has everything handed to him. And obviously the star of that feud is Naito. I have Naito hired. We'll talk about him more. But I think Okada played his role too. You know, not letting it really get to him but also showing that some stuff really got under his skin. Like the match at Invasion Attack where like the the crowd is pretty much like 70-30 Naito. And you can see it on Okada's face where it's like no one expected that. And it feels like a complete upheaval of everything New Japan had did for the last four years. And just everything got flipped on his head in one night. And Naito cheated to win, but it felt like, man, what is New Japan going to do now? Naito just turned the entire company on his head, but Okada comes back, gets his title. After that, yeah, I agree, he had a disappointing G1, but I think he kind of made up for that. Um, and like on that um, final for the A block, the Sumo Hall facing Tanahashi, one of their best matches yet, I really liked his um, opening um match against Marafuji. I thought that was a really great match and something that set up their eventual title match really well. Um we mentioned I mentioned symbolism and how Kenny Omega did the Bullet Club lineage finish when he faced Goto. Man the Kazuchika Okada um match against um, Marafuji where the dude uses an emerald flosion on Marafuji in front of the Noah roster, you know, that's pretty damn close to where Okada who's pretty much been a babyface since 2014 showed he still kind of had that dickishness in him where he did an emerald flosion of the like the move the fallen leader of Noah Misawa used to do his one of his finishing moves and did it 
Omar Fuji, who's the, who used to be the vice president of NOAA, and all these guys are looking at it, and it makes you go a gasp because Okada didn't have to do it. He did not have to do the Emerald Flosion. He could have just pinned him after the first Rainmaker. But he wanted to prove a point. No, he didn't, it wasn't even after a Rainmaker. It was after a Tombstone. And he gets up and turns it to a Tombstone. But it's just incredible to me. Like, he didn't have to do it. And that showed you that Okada still had that prick in him. But, you know, it's, not, not, it's New Japan limiting his character and what he is. But I like when he shows flashes of that stuff. Um... I think he is a guy that's always really strong in his multi-man matches, whether it's a tag match, whether it's a six-man tag, eight-man tag. You know, people get on guys like Tanahashi for dogging in multi-man matches. People get on Nakamura for it. But, God, man, you can never say Okada doesn't work hard in those matches because that guy is in there way more than he needs to be. Like, he does not need to be be in those matches as much as he is. But he just... But he just does it, and I think it's because he likes working that style. Um, you know, coming up as a Toriyaman guy. So we did a lot of six-man tag stuff, so we just used to it. But he's a guy that's really great working that stuff, too. So on top of his big matches where I thought he delivered, and him being someone who doesn't have to work as hard as he does in those six-man tags, I think he warranted a spot on my list. Not his best year, but he's a guy that still earned a spot. Yeah, and I mean, as you talk about it, it's hard to argue with you. I just, I didn't see it this year, and I think maybe I just wasn't paying enough attention. I mean, I think he did have some great stuff on the undercard multi-man matches, but at the same time, I just didn't see enough from him other than the status quo. And and, and there was, I, I think there was sometimes in bigger singles matches where I felt like he was dogging it more than even in multi-man. So yeah. that kind of just soured me on him this year. Right. So you're 13. My 13 is Hot Sauce Tracy Williams. I don't have Hot Sauce. All right. All right. So this guy, I think, always stood out to me as one of the the best the, the best young guy in the Catchpoint thing. And Catchpoint was like a, a group that was just tailor-made for my taste. Um, lots of shoot-style grappling on the mat, bare bones. This is all about wrestling. And Tracy Williams always kind of fit it to the T, starting out as the young lion, the young boy. Um, and over the course of the year, I think it might have spilled over a little bit into 2015, but mostly 2016. It was a story of the rivalry with him and, and Matt Riddle that I just loved as they were the underneath guys and they were fighting with each other. And, and sometimes it really felt like uh, – Gulak was intentionally kind of goading it on for them to fight each other more and more. And as they had their first two matches, I thought Tracy Williams has continued to look phenomenal. He has a great match with Chris Hero during the year that was, I think, just probably one of his best matches. And I think he really takes Chris Hero to the limit. He does it again later, but I think the, the earlier match with Hero um, that was in New York, and I'd have to look up exactly what it was, was the better of the two. Finally, the big match to me is him and him and Riddle at WrestleMania weekend. They have my match of the weekend, um, Tracy Williams versus Matt Riddle. Just, I think, the best match that happened all of WrestleMania weekend. That's saying a lot. And it's when Tracy Williams finally gets that win over Matt Riddle um, and kind of cements himself above Matt Riddle in the pecking order, I think. 
and goes on to tag with Gulak, winning the tag team titles, having, a again, a guy who goes from playing the, the student in a tag match. As soon as they lose the belt, he pivots to being the guy who's the mentor to Fred Yehi, and they continue to go after the belts as Gulak seems to focus on his own stuff. Meanwhile, you pepper in random matches here and there, um, stuff with Eric Royal, Trio's match against uh, Team Pazuzu, where he's playing like a lot of fun stuff. Uh, the, in the J-Lit, the match with Dominic Guarini really stood out to me as he made this young shooter-type guy look really fucking good um, and just did such a... Yeah, he's just such a great job being like playing the elder statesman in that match and making the young guy look really good, taking his, his weaknesses and making them strengths. Um, continues primarily in beyond. He's got matches with uh, John Gresham that I loved a lot from Battle of Who Could Care Less. Um, he also had a match with uh, Fred or John Silver that was phenomenal. The four-way tag where they do get the tag belts back I thought was really great all the way through. And uh, even just coming into this last most recent of all weekend catch point, uh, defend the titles against Casa and Ricochet in a match where Casa and Ricochet were not. Mostly Peter Casa wasn't 100% there. I thought that... Um, Tracy Williams and Fred Yehi were great on their game, telling the story of the match. And then he has that final match with Drew Gulak, who's his big mentor. And I think they had the best match on that show for Evolve 75. Um, and really cements um, Williams as a, as a big deal moving forward and as kind of the new face of Catchpoint and continuing on the legacy that his, uh, his kind of disgraced mentor is leaving behind as he moves forward. Um, meanwhile, him and Gulak had an even better match where they were on better terms with each other and less of like a blood feud when they had their Cruiserweight Classic uh, qualifying match where I thought that you could really tell that Williams was stepping it up even at that moment to try to try to really make himself stand out when he knew that more eyes are going to be on him because of the WWE setting. So just a guy who I really enjoy everything he does. Everything he does makes sense. He sticks to his character solidly all the way through and just works a style that I personally have a huge preference for. Yeah, I have no problem with Hot Sauce. I enjoy him a lot. And I think the um, angle with him now being the leader of Catchpoint after Gulag got signed is something that will lead to Hot Sauce getting even more opportunities and evolve in 2017. So he's a guy that broke out definitely this year, definitively became a player, became one of those guys that's like, you know, really close to being one of the top tier workers in the world. Just we look exactly where I had him. He was exactly on 60. Okay. So, yeah, mm-hmm. just outside. Yeah, just yeah, just outside of the list. I have enjoyed him a lot. Those two Chris Hero matches, the first one was great, but the second one, the second one where he starts off the match attacking Hero and he gets the big win, tapping out Hero and Laboom, you know, a fantastic, fantastic match. Um, the Riddle stuff, I think, honestly, a lot of people don't really talk about it, but Hot Sauce, I think, had a really big part in making Riddle. Oh, yeah. I think Hot Sauce is clearly Matt Riddle's best opponent, and I think that there's no question there. Yeah, I think Riddle, I mean... Riddle had been, you know, in Evolve, you know, in 2015, but I don't think anyone took notice of how great Riddle was until that first um, match with Hot Sauce on Evolve 55, the finals of the style battle. And that was like, like, I know for personally for me, when I saw that match, I was like, holy shit, I didn't know Matt Riddle was this good. But a lot of that, a lot of that had to do with Tracy Williams and Tracy Williams you know, not taking Riddle by the hand, but, you know, shining Riddle up really nicely and having Riddle sell from underneath, 
have to take a pile driver bump, which is weird because Riddle hasn't taken a pile driver for a while. But he does that insane pile driver bump, you know, the flying knee and all that stuff, and it makes Riddle look fantastic. But Hot Sauce has a, has a big part in that. Um, but yeah, I have no problem with Riddle. I mean, Hot Sauce being as high as he is for you because you like that style, and he's a guy that's even. Um, poised to have a bigger year in 2017, you know, being the leader of that stable. Which is then interesting going into my number 12 because it's kind of the opposite. Um, My number 12 is not poised to have an even better year next year because it's Mark Haskins. Yeah, Um, I had Mark Haskins at 47. 47. So, here's the thing. I've seen almost all of Mark Haskins' matches this year, um, predominantly the ones in progress, um, RPW. Uh, the one that he had in Fight Club Pro that really stands out is probably one of his best matches as he showed up as a last-minute replacement and had this phenomenal match with Trent Seven. Um, a lot of his matches in SWE, I've seen almost all of them. Uh, the matches in Smash where he won their championship and obviously the matches in PWG that I was there live for. And what I'm going to say is I don't think he's had anything that was less than a great match all year from everything that I've seen. Um, he delivers phenomenally. His biggest issue to me, and this is I'll just attack him to make it like not just a complete love fest. His biggest issue to me is that his game is so well-rounded that he doesn't focus um, on the limb that's going to end up playing into the finish was most of the time he has a submission finish. He'll switch back and forth from the the sharpshooter to the bridging arm bar to maybe across like a straight arm bar, triangle choke, different you know, submission you know, holds. You know, you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of the same criticisms that I've like made like Jonathan Gresham sometimes. Is that Jonathan Gresham is so talented at everything else that sometimes, you know, he might he may not, you know, consistently stay with the same limb that he's targeting. Yeah, and that's that's probably the my biggest issue with Haskins. But as I said, the guy didn't have a ton of matches this year, but every single one of his matches were great. He's always super intense. He always brings cool, intricate new stuff to his matches, different transitions from move to move, um, constantly moving, constantly working, constantly intense, sells everything about his match, came out of PWG Bola this year as the big star from the UK guys, um, seen as kind of everyone was talking about just how good he was and making it towards the end. Unfortunately, his year ended a little bit short um his career ended a little bit short as people just started to notice him but a guy who i say go back and check out the 2016 of mark haskins because it's very impressive to see a guy have such an amazing year and have it probably be the final year of his career yeah it feels like the story of mark haskins is kind of tragic where he's a guy that was busting his ass on the scene for a while you know in the uk also trying to make a name for himself in the united states working for tna and he just started getting a real buzz for himself recently in progress, you know, I think it definitely got, you know, kickstarted or had a flame that got even hot, um, got even hotter um, with that um, match versus Osprey from Chapter 21, I'd say. Wasn't yeah. He, wasn't the Osprey's first title defense? Um, yeah, yeah, he was, actually. Yeah, so that match definitely kickstarted what would have been, you know, the start of the breakout from Mark Haskins, and in 2016, he was pushed as the lead babyface in progress. That's what he was pushed as, and his title win at Brixton felt like a big deal. You know, it all, it it could have like the way that match was booked is that it could have got overshadowed by Jimmy Havoc coming back. 
But Mark Haskins didn't let that happen, and he just came across as a big deal. And that's something about Haskins is that regardless of what he's doing, he feels like a big star. And he's not a guy that people talk about him having an aura, but he does. Like, it's not, you know, it's it's comparable to Eric Royal, where Eric Royal is pushed as a star in CWF and other places, but he just comes across as a star in everything that he's doing, too. Mark Haskins is super intense. He just comes to the ring, water bottle in hand. You know, no nonsense, no bullshit. He just goes in there, sits in the corner, and then goes to work. And he's a guy that's super talented, obviously. You mentioned how well-rounded he is. Um, he may be the best of the guys to implement to implement um, grappling and jujitsu into their matches. Because he does it to where you, even, you wouldn't even think he's a guy that you would call a grappler. You know, he just blends it into his wrestling to where you don't even notice that he's doing it. He does do yeah. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, but you don't even like notice that stuff. And he's a guy where when he needs to turn it up, he does. That match versus Will Ospreay is tremendous. Um, the match where he wins this match, I look at Johnny Gargano. When Johnny Gargano's working heel, which is, you know, he hasn't done that in a couple of years. But Johnny Gargano's working heel facing Mark Haskins in progress. And it's a super intense match. And Mark Haskins gets a shocking win. And it's really tragic that Mark Haskins may never wrestle again because he just started to reach the peak of what he could do. I mean, God, the the dude stole the show at Bola. Like, you know, the dude really stole the show. That match of Cedric Alexander on the first night. What was the first night or second night? It was Cedric Alexander was on the... Oh, shit. Now I'm trying to think. Second night. Second, that match of Cedric on the second night. Then the match was with um, Kyle O'Reilly and Marty Skrull, which is... God, man, those he was really the MVP Ebola for me as far as match quality oh, goes. Yeah. Like that, like those matches were fantastic. Like I thought he had two four star matches on the same day. You know that guy is just ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so as I said, I mean, fuck. Can you think of a, a less than great Mark Haskins match this year? I mean, honestly, the guy has just been so goddamn good. Oh uh, man, it's, it's a, it really is a tragic story because Mark Haskins is a guy that just now started to reach where he should have been a long time ago and you know he just got cut short hopefully he comes back maybe it's not a career ending injury but shit dude he was a guy that was really poised to have a big end of 2016 and bigger 2017 you know and it like like losing him has forced has forced progress to change their plans so many times like I'm not sure I know the exact plan, but was it like? Don't you think Haskins was gonna win the Super Strong Style 16? I'm pretty sure that's what it felt like. I mean, it's like that's the way they were going. So Haskins was like Haskins was probably gonna win, or at least make it to the finals. Yeah, at least at least make it to the final and face end. But you know, Haskins, you know, gets sick and he has to miss that, and then he wins the title. And then he has to let them vacate it. And that forces progress to change their plans on the fly and push guys like Pete Dunn, Trent Seven, and Tyler Bate more than they probably intended to at this point. And even, yeah. it, it, like, even in the biggest year of his career, he still had setbacks that he could have had, he could have had an even bigger year if X and Y didn't happen. So um, I guess that's my 12. <laughs> no, that was my 12. Oh yeah, I'm gonna say my twelve. I didn't say I didn't get my twelve yet. So oh yeah, yeah. you're gonna so, give your twelve now. 
So my 12 is Shingo Takagi. Oh, hey. He was on my list on the other show. <laughs> All right, what was he? <laughs> but I have him. He was my 45. Okay. Um, Shingo is... Shingo is... Uh, he's the best heel in wrestling. <laughs> he is the biggest bully, like, you know, high school stuff you in a locker jock that there is. He is so completely unlikable that even if you're not a Dragon Gate fan, I feel like you should at least acknowledge that, man, this guy is such a complete asshole. And on top of having that stellar character work where it just shines so much in his matches, he has the great match output too. I didn't like the first Jimmy Susamu match from this year. It annoyed me for a few reasons. One of them being that um, the entire tour, Shingo would, you know, attack Jimmy Susamu's arm. But for some reason, when they got to the match, Jimmy Susamu wasn't selling it as as much as I would have hoped. And I'm not really a guy that bitches about selling, but that really annoyed me. And I think Shingo after that um, made it so that didn't like really drag him down I think what he did um, in the King of Gate facing Don Fuji um, was really great too I think the feud that he had within Berserk was great it was Yamato and Doi and um, Noki Tendazaki um, going up against Shingo and Cyber Kong and that side of the stable and even if it was infighting within a group it felt like there was still some almost gang warfare aspects to it and it peaked at Dead or Alive where the rest of the stable sided with Shingo and confirmed that he was their leader and then kicking out Yamato the feud with Yamato was great storytelling um, it um, capped off at Kobe World in a fantastic match that's in my top 10 matches of the year um I just think Shingo's a fantastic professional wrestler and since 2015 when he turned heel um officially at Dangerous Gate the guy's just been on a complete warpath and everything he does even in you know the unit disbandment matches where there's so many guys in the ring Shingo always stands out for what he's doing, for the way he cuts off people's um, um, momentum and all that. And even the interactions he has with Shashi Hoko Boy, where that was the catalyst for the Shingo heel turn in the first place. And every time those two are in the ring, Shingo just wants to completely murder him. And it's great how Shingo makes something that's essentially an undercard feud feel like something super big whenever they interact with each other. So, you know... Shingo's on my list, the best heel in wrestling, and you know I don't have much more to say about him. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a similar conversation as we're having about the Miz. I think he's a guy that people, especially from what you hear in Japan, they don't appreciate just how good he is. They think that oh, I just hate that guy, but they don't realize that they're just getting worked by this amazing, fantastic worker who, um, who yeah, just has this aura and his presence of being a badass and breaking out the past couple of years as the the main you know the leader of the main heel faction in Berserk um and and just really coming into his own as as just a major 
kick-ass presence and I mean, he's always been a phenomenal worker, but I think he's doing his best heel work ever right now. Um, I did think that, you know, losing the title to Susamu felt like just such a weird little thing, like a blip on the radar that shouldn't have happened, but he definitely was able to build back his momentum really quickly after that um, without, you know, yeah, like making it be that big of a deal that that happened and just continues on. And the Dead or Alive being really built around Berserk completely was really interesting because, you know, a lot of times the dead or alive cage matches I think really come down more to do with faces overcoming and this one was really more about heels just healing it up all the way and I thought that that was really cool so I just think yeah he's he's able really he could take anyone I mean the bullshit with Punch Tabanaga just fucking with him um, Kodako kind of doing himself up and all the red becomes a star because of Shingo being the balance act like being the balance as the big evil to the group <laughs> And yeah, stuff like hating Sachioka Boy because, you know, of the Amigo tag and the buddy-buddy bullshit with Yoshino that just pissed him off. And that's why he turned evil because he had just had enough of it. I thought just so fantastic the way that um, he carries himself and the way that he calls back to that kind of hate and that kind of vitriol that he has towards these people. So that's what Shingo got on my list. You know, it's it's tough because I, I don't watch as much Dragon Gate as I'd like to. And, and you know, in Dragon Gate, it's it's almost even more of the same as it is in new Japan where they don't have a lot of big singles matches. It's a lot of trios and tags throughout, which don't always kind of pique my interest as much as they should. Yeah. And I guess after this, we're going to wrap up the episode. We're going to do our top tens on the third part of this, you know, which was unexpected, but, uh, (laughs) but I guess to my person, the cap off this installment is ricochet. Oh, well, we'll be talking about him on the third episode. And uh, I guess we'll do my my number 11, which I doubt you'll have, is Roderick Strong. No, I don't have Roddy. So Roddy was another one where I kind of stopped and looked at his resume for 2016 on the Indies and noticed that, I mean, he went pretty much all the way through July, which is more than half the year. And while you could easily make a case that his 2015 was better, his 2016 was still phenomenal. His coming into his own as a heel, and by the beginning of 2016, he was firmly the biggest asshole on the planet. Um, But such a goddamn good worker that he was starting to get turned face by the crowd, just enjoying him so much. Um, People were mixing up from not just, you know, fuck Roderick Strong, but also loving Roderick Strong. Um, fantastic matches with people of all different sizes. It could be Speedball Mike Bailey, Jack Evans, or it could be you know Drew Galloway. It could be Monsters. It could be Ishii. It could be Bobby Fish. It could be Mark Briscoe, Sammy Callahan. It didn't matter. Roddy Strong made everyone look so good. And then the second that he gets out of out oh, and even like Dalton Castle while he's in ROH, Mark Briscoe while he's in ROH, Jay Briscoe. Um, Pretty much anyone he steps in the ring with, he ups their game and he makes them look better. Um, and then the second he's done with ROH, the first match he has with Evolve is against Matt Riddle and has a just a fucking certified banger of a match and really gives Matt Riddle a totally different performance than he's had all year. Um, the match, I think it was his last match in PWG, he goes up against Timothy Thatcher in just a match that I just love to bits. I thought both guys just really brought it in that match. Roddy Strong got something out of Thatcher that I think we haven't seen a lot of Thatcher in 2016, even though I am a big fan of Thatcher I think Roddy just showed going back to back with Riddle and Thatcher having taken these guys outside of their comfort zone and that's where Roddy really shines is he 
to steal a phrase from the old biker taker, Roddy Strong really stands out to me in matches where it seems like he takes his opponents into the deep waters and just leaves them out there um, where they kind of feel like they're winded and they're out of breath and they're getting hit from all the other sides. And those are those moments where you just feel you almost feel exacerbated and overwhelmed for the pe- for his opponents as he just keeps coming at him with barrage of kick after kick. Everything looks super stiff. Every match has amazing storytelling, super great psychology. So Roddy Strong, then from there, you know, he gets into NXT. He gets into WWE. Uh, he has some good matches here and there, but he hasn't really gotten a chance to shine just yet. But I saw him live have a match with No Way Jose that I thought was phenomenal. So I just think, you know, the guy is just... He's just a bang-up amazing worker who really, another one who kind of came into his own later in his career, but luckily his story doesn't have to end on a sour note, and his story gets to continue going. Yeah, and um, I remember liking that um, Tomohiro Ishii match from Honor Rising a lot more than most people, which surprised me because a lot of people complain about uh, Ishii has this formula, all Ishii does is he chop these chop fast or whatever. It was like, well, when Ishii gave you something different, people were still complaining, which was weird to me, and Roderick Strong was able to give you one of uh, Ishii's more um, different matches that he's had in, 20, in 2016. Um, you didn't mention the um, the All-Star Weekend stuff that he did. Um, the first match going up against Mark Andrews, and he just murders poor Mark Andrews. You know, Roddy is, for his size, people wouldn't think he's a great bully, but holy shit, when Roderick Strong gets to, talk, gets to tossing somebody around, it's a sight because you don't expect him to be able to do that. And then the next night facing Zack Sabre Jr. And the reason why that title switch meant like was so hot is because, you know, even though, you know, Zack was super over at the time too, people, you know, just hated Roddy, you know, and they wanted to see someone dethrone him so badly. And when that match happened and when that finish happened, it felt like the entire crowd was like you know, happy, not because they hated Roddy, like, just because, like, they made this feel like such a big deal, it was such an epic title reign, and that once it was over, it felt like a monumental achievement, um, I didn't really watch the rest of his Ring of, Ring of Honor stuff, um, when he was finishing out, um, but I did like whatever, like, what I saw of him, because, like, he was a baby face in Ring of Honor for pretty much all of 2015, and then the heel work that I saw from him was very, very strong, um, he had a really good match with um, Anthony Henry at PWX, which is one of Anthony Henry's best matches of the year. He mentioned the Matt Riddle match, and this that's it. Really surprised me that people don't talk about that match that much, because that's one of the matches where if anyone that says you know all Riddle does is sprints, well that really wasn't a sprint. You know that was a really well laid out match. I thought um, so. I have no problem with Roderick Strong being on your list, so. In the third part, we'll be doing our top tens. Um, anything you want to say, plug, before we sign off here? Oh, no. Just uh, go listen to This Week in Wrestling. Go listen to Lucha Undead and uh, follow me on Twitter at Lucha Undead. All right. You can follow me on Twitter at QT underscore Moody. Um, part three of this will be recorded whenever. But thank you all for listening. Hope you're here next time.